All right. Welcome. Welcome. We have April 1st in the chat for week 30 of What Did Prince Do This Week? We are super excited. Come on in. Come on in. If you're not here, you're really going to miss out and you're going to be really sad. So you should actually like text all your friends, all your book club friends, tell them that they need to be here because this is a special, special, special episode that nobody knows about, but you will soon. And we're going to get through the housekeeping as soon as we can, because we want to make sure that uh, we have a lot of time for our very illustrious special guests. So welcome, Mila. Welcome, Christina from Minneapolis. The morning, KMS 1984. Good morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. We're so excited. We're so excited. All right. So we're going to get through this housekeeping with the quickness. We're week 30 of What Did Prince Do This Week? ATL is in the house. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for being here. I knew you would. This is one of my favorite parts. Good morning, Arthur. Well, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. I just I just had a I had a viewing of the of, of the special guest. Yeah. So I did go through my breathing exercise, but I think there was just some residual there as the music was the music kicked in and everything. So I wasn't, you know. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, as Morris would say. Uh dances. We got TP in the house. We got Kyle Christian. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Man Ray. Like I said, I really want to get through these. I'm not going to say hello to everybody because we want to get to our special guests. Um, I normally would say hello to everybody, but I hope you guys. Yeah, they switch up when when company come around. Yeah, kind <laughs> of code switching. <laughs> we're code, we're code switching. Can't say hi no more. <laughs> yes, oh. that's how it works. All right. So what did Prince do this week? It's not the state of Prince Rogers Nelson is not affiliated, associated, or connected with the What Did Prince Do This Week book club series. We're going week to week, not date to date. And you can follow the detailed schedule at Bitly Prince Book Club. We are reading the expanded edition. Hold that, Michael, while I found my, my mouse. There we go. There we go. Awesome. And you don't need it, but that's what the schedule is based off of. These are archived on my YouTube channel, Polish Solid, as well as Michael Ding's um, YouTube channel. Hashtag WDPDTW, whenever you want to send us something or comment. Ooh, Vanessa, you really want to stay because we got a very special guest. So you got to watch this afterwards. And hello, Simon. Hello, Theo. Welcome, Dee. Welcome, Nick. Welcome, Audra. You're new. Just call me Light. Is that right? Thank you so much. From Africa. All right. So we are <laughs> where I want us to be with the quickness. We're going to listen to this music a little bit. All right. Love this when it kicks in. All right. 
Okay. Oops. So normally what we would be doing is going into a deep dive of the Eric Lee song we just played. So I'm going to give a massive alert right now. We're going to go into the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. Mm. I know some of you guys don't like my rabbit holes, but I bet you're going to like my rabbit hole today because we have a very, 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 very special guest. And you guys should know who it is because I told you it's somebody that we talk about every week. So our very special guest is none other than Mr. Edwin. A smattering of applause. <laughs> Canned applause at that. <laughs> so thank you so much, Eric, for being here with us today. And we're so excited to have you here because we actually started off playing Madhouse, but then we ran out of Madhouse, then we transitioned to Times Squared, and then we ran out of Times Squared, and then we transitioned into Things Left Unsaid. And I realized that Things Left Unsaid is an album that we just don't talk enough about. It's a really awesome album, and I thought that it would be great. We could just ask Eric if he'd be willing you know, to come on and talk to us about it. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. My, you know, my point in my life, I'm happy to be anywhere. So I'm not here. <laughs> so, and I don't have to, I don't have to leave my room either. So, <laughs> you know. Well, it's, it's an honor to have you, sir. Well, the honor, the honor is mine. Believe me. So. Yes. Yes. So we're going to get into it. And um, normally I would actually talk about the song that we just played and some of the players, but actually, since we have you here, do you mind talking specifically about time's gift? No, I'd love to talk about that song. Um, the song meant a lot to me. Um, the song was written by um, a friend of mine, a pianist from my days in Pittsburgh. Um, I grew, I grew up in Pittsburgh. That's where my, my career began. My, my family moved to Pittsburgh when I was about 14 years old. So I went to high school in Pittsburgh. I went to music school in Pittsburgh. The first almost oh, 10, 12 years of my career was basically in Pittsburgh. Um, the writer of that song, Time's Gift, was a, a pianist and composer named uh, Don DePaulis. And he was a few years older than me. Um, he was somewhat of a mentor of mine. I, I learned an awful lot about jazz harmony uh, from him. Uh, some of my first jazz gigs were, were with him and, and others of his clique. Um, he wrote that song probably in the late 1970s. And I actually did a demo recording of it, I think around 1979, with, with the band that I had then in Pittsburgh. Um, just, just as a demo, never really went anywhere. So, and I always, always just absolutely loved that song. So I always thought that whenever I would if I ever had the opportunity to really do, you know, to do an album that 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 song might work on, that I would I would do that. So um, that's why that song was on the album. Um, I also have to add that from a, a harmonic perception, it was one of and still is one of the most difficult songs I've ever had to play on. Hmm. The harmonic sequence, uh, particularly behind the saxophone solo, is. Um, it's insidious. It sounds very simple. It is not. It, it is a, you know, the, the, the sequence of the changes and the way they, they feed off of each other is really, really, at least for me anyway, really, really difficult. So I spent a lot of, a lot, a lot of time 
you know, learning how to play that song before I was even going to dare to take it in the studio. Um, anyway, it, it was just a song. I just absolutely adore that song. And, and my Don, un, unfortunately, tragically passed away um, several years ago. Um, but years ago, he had sent me a whole stack of, of compositions of his. And there are things of his that I would love to be able to record sometime in the future also. But he, he was a tremendous, tremendous musician and meant an awful lot to me. So, wow. Awesome. Awesome. So there's a like there's kind of like a clicking noise. Do you guys hear that? Or is it just me? I do. I don't know where it's coming from, um, but it stopped just then. Yeah, I don't hear it. Yeah. OK. OK. All right. So um, before we get started, I just want to um, let everybody in the chat know that today, primarily, we're going to be talking about things left unsaid, as well as Times Square. And the reason why we're talking about things left unsaid in Times Square, it's because Eric has spoken a lot already about Madhouse. He's already spoken a lot about the family. And to be honest, I actually don't have all of his interviews in the slideshow. And then remember what the slideshow is on our homepage. You, you can go to the front homepage and all these links will actually go directly to those um, interviews with Eric. So you can listen to Michael Dean's four part 2017 interview. You can listen to Princess Friend 2019 two part interview. You can listen to the Sign Time Super Deluxe celebration where it was Eric Leeds um, Atlanta Blitz and Dr. Fink. It was that was a really amazing conversation. Um, and then you can also go to Funktopias that have uh, from 2021 that have a couple of episodes. Then there's also St. Paul's Music on the Run um, podcast, which is a really special one because St. Paul and Eric Lees are in the same room. And um, for those of you who just got to get your madhouse on, you can go to the Sign Time Super Deluxe Celebration and Dr. Fink talk to us about Madhouse Live specifically. So I just want you to know that the time is going to go by super fast. And I really want to concentrate on Eric's solo records because uh, we don't talk enough about them. So I hope that you'll understand that I'm going to ignore your Madhouse questions. <laughs> All right. So we're going to do a little bit of an icebreaker. And today, actually, the sex of it was recorded on July 29th. Today is July 29th of 1987. And I know that Kid Creole and the Coconuts is one of Eric's favorite groups. And I know that yep. you also recorded on the song. So can you tell us about the sex of it? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I, I was and am a huge, huge fan of, of Kid Creole. Um, absolutely just loved him. And... Um, he had, uh, they had released an album, I think it was 1987 when we did this, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, yep, 87. Yeah, his, his album, Kid Creole's album, uh, I Too Have Seen the Woods, the Forest, had just come out. Anyway, there was a song on that album called Dancing the Bandu. It was one of my absolute favorite songs that, that Kid Creole did. And I, I, I had just gotten the album, had just come out, and I was just listening to that song particularly nonstop. And um, I happened to be out at Paisley one afternoon and um, went in, in into one of the studios just to see what was going on. Um, and Prince, Prince wasn't there, but there was a track up that he, he had been working on. And uh, I asked Susan Rogers, who was still working with Prince then, uh, I said, what, what's he got up? And she played me this track, which was the, the sex of it. 
And I, I heard it and I laughed and I said, oh, Prince got the new Kid Creole album. <laughs> I, mean, I, said, I said, oh, boy, this, 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 this sounds too much like a Kid Creole kind of thing. Hmm. Um, so I put, put a horn arrangement on it. And like a lot of other things that we did with Prince at that time, you, you know, you might do a song and you never hear from it again. It goes in the vault and that's the last of that. I actually have no idea whether he um, wrote the song specifically for Kid Creole because it didn't end up going to Kid Creole until several years later. Um, it, it actually, I think, ended up on what I think was Kid Creole's first album for, was it Columbia Records? I think he signed with it. That yeah, time. it was Columbia, and the record yeah. came out in 1990. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how long the thing had been sitting around. Now, Prince may have sent it to him much earlier, and, and Kid Creole might have been just waiting for it to put it on on whatever album he could put it on um but anyway that that's you know but there, there was to me there was no coincidence that that prince did that track when he did it mm -hmm. thank you so much for that insight really do appreciate it all right so um before we start talking about specific songs about things left unsaid i really want to talk to you about the art direction for the album it's actually one of my favorite covers Mm -hmm. And like the inserts, it's just like it creates like this mood. Um, and so can you tell us like did you did you have this idea of how you kind of wanted this jazz club setting or was it the art director? Can you tell us a little bit about how the cover came about? That really was the the art director at Warner Brothers who, who was responsible for, for that idea. Um and I, I just basically went along with it. I mean, my, my, I, I, I hate photo shoots and things like I, I loathe them. I hate having to be in photo shoots. I hate having to be in videos. I mean, I just, that's just, you know, just I, mainly because I don't like the hours. You have to get up very early. That, that doesn't work with me. Um, but it's, it's really just standing around waiting a lot you know, for whatever's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, so basically, I I really just, um, I have very little, very few ideas about what photo shoots or what the, you know, the artwork should be. So I'm basically, you know, I've done my part. I've made the music. You you guys got to sell it. Mm -hmm. So tell me what you need me to, you know, tell me what you want this to look like. If it's something that I don't want or don't think is good, I'm going to let you know. But come to me with the idea. So, so this seemed cool. And at that point, it's like, okay, this is fine. Let's do this and get it done. You can put your pick my put my picture on the album, get it out there. Um, that in in looking back at that particular photo shoot, um, what I probably remember most about it is there was probably more money spent on that photo shoot than I usually have to spend on the entire album. Wow. <laughs> on subsequent, you know, I mean, I I was fortunate to have. Um, pretty generous recording budgets for my Paisley Park albums mm -hmm. um, and realizing making an album like Things Left Unsaid, I was probably, it was probably going to be unlikely that I would have a recording budget like that in, in the future. And believe me, that it, 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 it has never been like that again. So I just laugh and I said, I wonder really how much was spent on just, you know, the couple of days for that photo shoot just compared, you know, I would love, I think a lot of artists would love to have that money just to make an album with. So, yeah, for anyway. sure. Yeah. Can, can I ask you something about just leading into the album? Like what 
um, what was sort of the consensus or the idea? Was it supposed to be a madhouse thing and then decided that, you know what, shift it, over to this? And, and it, this, is, quick this is how it really, it really okay. came about. Um, things left unsaid, there is an invisible hand in, in that album. That invisible mm. hand is Prince. Mm. Um, Prince had absolutely nothing to do with any of the music on that album. In fact, when I started recording, between the time that I started recording the music for Things Left Unsaid, I don't think Prince heard one bit of it until the album was completely done. And basically, he was handed the finished product. Mm. So, but Times Squared, uh, the previous album, was supposed to be the third Madhouse album. Mm. And only when... Um, you see, the first two, you know, just briefly, just to put a context, Madhouse is not me. Madhouse is Prince. I just had a role <laughs> in Madhouse. And, and, and the, the role obviously was bigger than it would be me just being a sideman or playing on any of his own vocal music. Right. Because essentially my, my horns were the equivalent of the lead vocal from Madhouse. Um, but they were his projects. And all of the final decisions that were made were made by him. Um, when it came time to doing what we were going to do, this third Madhouse album, Prince was involved with other things at the time, and he didn't have um, the time to spend on it. So for the first time, he actually threw it at me and said, OK, this is where I think you should be going with this, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Times Squared was what came of that. After Prince heard the final mixes and everything for everything that I had done for Times Squared, Obviously, he liked it very much, but he said to me, it doesn't sound like a Madhouse record anymore. And I said, well, that's probably true, basically, because this was really more my input. Mm -hmm. And although most of the music on Times Squared was stuff that had originated with Prince, I was taking it and basically giving carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do with it. So that's when Prince decided, OK, I would like to sign you as a solo artist of Paisley Park Records and this is going to be your first album. Mm. Well, you know, dream come true, you mm -hmm. know, basically. Although, to be absolutely honest, if I had known beforehand, or if he had come to me originally and said, let's put Madhouse on the side, and I'm going to sign you, Times Square probably wouldn't have been an album that I would have made. Mm -hmm. Things Left Unsaid would have been. Mm. Now, when it came time to um, do a second album, the way artist contracts usually work as you might get an album contract that might say um, seven or eight albums, but it's all options. So basically they're looking at the performance of the preceding album and the record company might say, well, you didn't sell as many records as we thought you would. So we're not going to pick up the option. You're free. Bye. Get out of here. Um, I had no illusions or, or necessarily expectations on whether or not Prince was going to pick up the option for me to do a second album. Now, very conveniently, by that time, my brother, Alan, was actually the head of Paisley Park Records, <laughs> which is a nice thing to have. You're an artist. So it's not a bad thing to have your brother running the record company. But that um, that possible conflict of interest put aside, <laughs> Prince was still the person that's going to actually make the decision. Mm. So I went into him and uh to have a sit down and basically I need to find out from because the timeline was such that if they were going to pick up the option, they now had like a 60 day window in which to make that decision. 
So I'm sitting down with Prince and I said, look, I just need to know one thing. Are you picking up the option so I can do another album? We had a very in interesting and kind of funny conversation. Um, but the point was, is that finally, after about a half hour, 45 minutes of just talking about this, that and the other, I just said, look, dude, I need an answer because if you're not picking up the option, I need to get the hell out of here real quick and try to find somebody that might want to record, mm -hmm. you know, do a record for me. So he looked at me and he laughed. He said, oh, man, we're, I'm picking up the sure, You can do another album. I said, OK, fine. At this point, it was like um, him asking me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've got I've got a working band and I've got a stack of material on my own that I could start with. But Warner Brothers had just revamped their entire jazz department and brought mm -hmm. in some new people. They had brought in a new A&R man, a guy named Matt Pearson. They were expanding the scope of the department. And my brother, basically, while I'm signed to Paisley Park Records, we are completely dependent on all of the marketing and distribution of Warner Brothers, which gives us the opportunity to then take advantage of all the resources that they have as a major label, including the A&R department in, in the new A&R jazz department. So I told Prince, Alan and I really think it's, it's essential for us, first of all, to sit down with, with Matt Pearson at Warner Brothers and have a conversation with him and see what we can come up with and see what they can provide for me based on where basically I would kind of like to go. And Prince mm -hmm. laughed and he looked at me and said, you want to get in bed with the suits? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because Prince always had, you know, Prince is well known as not, not exactly having the most cordial relationship with anybody that he perceives as not a musician, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I basically told Prince, I said, look, Prince, these are the people that can provide me with the opportunities and the musicians that I want to work with. Mm. And I said, do you have my back? Because if you have my back, then if they run cockeyed, I can always say, well, you know something? Prince may not like that idea. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my ace in the hole. And Prince looked at me and he said, Eric, I got your back. Wow. That's amazing. And basically what was he said, get the now get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. Go where do whatever you need to do to make your music. And you are not restricted and said, get out of here because what you need to do isn't around here. Go. And that's basically what it was so then we went to warner brothers sat down and we just rolled from there um and any other aspect of my relationship with prince when it comes to being in his band or his music or whatever for me the most significant thing about my relationship with him was basically him telling me i got your back mm -hmm. and him providing me the opportunity to do what i have always really ever wanted to do is that make my own music in the way that I wanted to make it and base and, and, you know, the, the there's no, there's only one, I, I can't say this without it set, sounding self-serving, which hasn't, has never stopped me before. So, mm -hmm. so um, it's kind of been unusual for Prince to take an interest in somebody that he was, you know, and basically um, no strings attached mm -hmm. because basically what he was telling me and, and he basically said it to me, he said, all I'm interested in hearing what you got. 
go mm -hmm. out and, you know, whatever you do, that's all I want to hear. So get out of here. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you carte blanche, no strings attached, whatever you want to do with whomever, go do that. And, and that a lot of trust that you had. Yeah. And, and, you, you know, um, like anybody else that knew Prince and knew him well, I could I could tell you stories about Prince that, you know, aren't the most complimentary things in the world, because on any given day, this was still who he was. But all mm -hmm. of that is Tweedledum Tweedledee. Mm -hmm. This is what the dude did for me. Mm -hmm. And I, you, you know, I can never be grateful enough for that. So, you know. Could I ask a, could I ask a brief question? Sure. Did you ever feel that that you were treated when you when you interface with Warner Brothers Jazz. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that you were treated as a Warner Brothers Jazz artist or was it Prince's sax player who's now making a foray into albums? And I ask it that way because with Warner Brothers coming out of the late 80s, going into the early 90s, they had David Sanborn, they had Joe Sample, they had Michael Franks, they had Miles yeah. Davis for a period. And yeah. Even, uh, I believe, early, what, 93, maybe 94, Joshua Redman, another tenor well, sax player, was coming out. Did you unsaid, feel that you were piped in to that? I was not signed to Warner Brothers, so they were not interested or did they, have a, they did not have accountability okay. to my album like they would. Joshua Redman had just been signed by Matt Pearson. Right. Joshua, uh, Red, okay. Joshua Redman's first album was released almost at the same time that Things Left Unsaid was. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I actually was doing some promo tours with Joshua, uh, <laughs> doing radio station interviews together with him. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and it, was, it was very humbling, believe me, because the hype on, on Joshua was that mm -hmm. here's this kid who was the son of the great Dewey Redman, mm -hmm. um, saxophone, jazz saxophone, legendary jazz saxophone player. Um, he had been, where was he? Was he at Harvard or was he at Yale? I think he was at Harvard, but he was a pre-med student hmm. who had decided to put all that aside and just pursue his muse in, in music. So he had so a backstory. This is the stuff, right. That was so, interesting. Th so this backstory is like <laughs> uh -huh. a, a, a jazz publicist dream. So I'm doing this, so I'm doing these radio interviews, mm -hmm. and oh we got Joshua and they're going through this, and then they say, and now here's Eric Lees, and he plays saxophone with Prince. And right, uh, right, like, right, oh, right, okay, right, 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 right. Um, now, once again, having Prince as my ace in the hole was what enabled me to take advantage of the resources mm -hmm. that the that the jazz department could bring to me. They probably would have loved nothing more than for me to do, quote, a madhouse like mm -hmm. funk R&B light jazz record, which was not what my interest was in mm -hmm. any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, though, um, they they came and, you, you know, the thing was a producer. The first thing that we decided on was was who should produce. And, and I was dead set on having an outside producer. Mm -hmm. And we settled on Gil Goldstein, who was a, a, a very, very well-known keyboard player and composer arranger from New York. who had, had um, you know, a, a, a career very solid career. I, I was well aware of Gil Goldstein and thought that that was an absolute wonderful choice. Um, and it was. I mean, what Gil brought to the music and, and, mm -hmm. and, and to the album was um, was essential. 
you know, I could pr probably go through every song of the album and point exactly what Gil brought to it that, that, you know, added value. Because the whole point was to put me in a context that I couldn't be in on myself. Okay. And I've, I've made a lot of music just on my own. And I know what I am capable of. But after a while, you get bored with that because I said, well, I, I, I know me. I want to know what I can do when put in a situation where I have to react from all of this other input. And Gil Goldstein and this Warner Brothers department, they're going to be able to give me the resources because when they first asked me, so, well, Eric, we know what weather report, what that band meant to you. Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. said, we can get you Alejandro Acuna and Alfonso Johnson maybe to play on your record. And, and you're and like, I'm, hell I'm, yes. Yeah. I, I said, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that that's yeah. That, I'll pick up. You need to call them right now. <laughs> you know, before we go. You know, so those are the things. Now, on the other hand, you know, I'm looking and say, oh my god, you know, I I got to step up my game. But you see, that's the whole point. Um, the musician that I was going into that album and the musician that I was coming out of it was, you know, I I wanted an album where my what what's the phrase my my reach is greater than my graspers or the other way around. Like I mean, I'm, I'm, kind of right. I'm, I'm, they're bringing all of this in and it's like, this is my album, but I'm the one that's got to like step up. And given the opportunity to do that was, um, that was what, what was so essential. Um, I knew I could make a record, mm, mm. but you know, this was like, okay, th this is where I have always wanted to be. I got to see, do I belong here? Mm, you know, can, mm -hmm. can I make this work? So that was what was so essential about that. So for all of the sometimes cockeyed ideas that they, that Warner Brothers and Matt Pierce and Gil Colson, I mean, they came with some, you know, a bunch of ideas that I would, might've just rejected out of hand. But mm -hmm. it's like, if they bring me, you know, for every 20 ideas or uh, options that they bring, if there are two or three that I'm saying, okay, this is where, this is where I want to go. And I can utilize them. Then all the rest of the stuff, like I say, is, is, is Tweedledum, Tweedledee. Um, having that opportunity in those surroundings and 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 what, what was essential. I couldn't have done that. I, I once again, I couldn't have done that at Paisley Park. Mm, mm -hmm. Now, you, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little back. Another thing about about Prince's relationship with me and and his interest about that. Once again, I, I I can't say this without it being self-serving. Prince realized really where I wanted to go, even maybe before I did. Hmm. When we were doing Times Squared, there are two songs on that album that pianist Ricky Peterson, Paul Peterson's older brother, plays. I had known, I knew of Ricky. I'd only met him a couple of times. I had never worked with Ricky. Um, Ricky was David Sanborn's musical director for years. I mean, he's he's mm, a first call mm -hmm. keyboard player. He's been on the road with Stevie Nicks, you know, and her touring for the last several years. Um, Ricky is one of the the most remarkable musicians that I've ever had had the opportunity to work with. But I had never met, never had the opportunity to work with him yet. So while I'm doing Times Squared, there were two songs on that album. There was a song called Andorra, mm -hmm. which actually the original track was left over from the sessions that had yielded the second Madhouse album. Mm. And I was taking that track and doing a whole 
lot of different things with it. And it was actually cutting it up. I was taking pieces and reordering them, wow. coming up with a, with with a new scheme of trying to make because the track really wasn't finished. So mm-hmm. I kind of had mm-hmm. to take what was there and try to construct something else out of it. There had been a, a, a piano solo of Prince's on the original track, but by the time I had started editing and reforming this tune, that solo was dumped. It went away. So. And there was another song on the album called Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. that did not have any keyboard. It was just guitars, and I put my horns on some synthesizer pads and things like that. But I wanted a piano track on it to just kind of bring everything together, kind of like a glue track to kind of bring all the extempore and kind of make sense out of everything. So you have to understand, at this point, this is still supposed to be a Madhouse record. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, this is Madhouse, so I'm going to go to Prince. So I mm-hmm. went to Prince and said, look, I recut this, you know, reordered and re-edited this song that, that we had left over from, from the last Madhouse session. I need you to come in and put a new piano solo on it. Also, this other song, I need you to just put like an extemporaneous piano thing on it. So he was listening to a couple minutes of what I did, and he looked at me and said, uh-uh. And I said, what do you mean? He said, no. He said, you need to call Ricky Peterson. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, Eric, I can put something on here that would that would be cool. But where you're going with this, you need somebody with the vocabulary and the harmonic experience of somebody like Ricky. And he said, he's the guy in this town in Minneapolis. Go to Ricky Peterson. And he laughed and he looked at me and says, you will thank me in the morning. <laughs> you know? Wow, that's and Prince telling you. I, to go I, call, I call Ricky. I said, Ricky, um, I have been told... <laughs> that you need to come and do this. <laughs> Ricky came in. Now understand, I knew Ricky, but I'd never really worked with him yet. And on the first song, within the first 30 seconds, I'm just saying, oh shit. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. This, this is, you know, his harmonic vocabulary, his baby, you know, to channel like a Herbie Hancock, a Chick Corea, a Keith Jarrett, a Joe Zavinul, a McCoy Tyner, yeah. all of that that he carries within him that makes up who he is all of that he could bring to bear on this music. Prince couldn't do that. That's not what Prince was. And wow. Prince was the one who was telling me, uh-uh, That's... this is above my pay grade. And when wow. Prince says something to you like that, you listen. This was a certain this was a circumstance where Prince and me are talking to each other as musicians. Mm, mm-hmm. He isn't he isn't Prince the superstar. He is sitting and we are talking about music and he's hearing what this is and saying, Eric, this is where you need to go with this. Mm-hmm. I know you know that, but uh-uh. And maybe I know you're coming to me because it's our thing, but uh-uh, this ain't my thing no more. You're, you know. So that background mm-hmm. kind of led to his basically giving me carte blanche to go with things left unsaid. That was kind of the precursor to that. Because if he's basically telling me, this is where you need to go. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Just go make your music with whom, you know. And like I said, when when a musician of Prince's caliber is willing to basically have that kind of a conversation and a relationship with with you on that basis, that's worth it. That's worth its weight in gold, obviously. So, could I ask one small follow up question? Sure. sure. Okay. So mm-hmm. the really cool thing about things left unsaid in real time, when Times Squared was released before mm-hmm. social media, before all that. I don't know how the hell I found out, probably because I went to the record store a lot. But I'm saying, 
Eric Leeds has a solo album. Holy shit, we got to go get it. And we got it. Okay. Things Left Unsaid comes out. And immediately, you know, I, 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 I'm amazed and happily amazed that Prince was the hidden hand. But yeah. you clearly hear that, okay, the Prince is not involved in this music. There are these musical cues that just don't, that don't exist there. Right. This yeah. is more of an improvisational group. And when I talk about jazz, I really talk about it in the terms of improvisational music. Mm -hmm. where particularly live, the same song isn't played the same kind of way, and you're actually having these conversations between musicians on the stage. Things, yep. le things Left Unsaid is feeling more towards that. Oh, was there a question? Yeah, there absolutely was. <laughs> Prince talking to you like that and saying those things about, you know what, this is who you need to call. Even though Prince in his upbringing, his father, those experiences, grew up in an, with a foundational for improvisational music, I never saw Prince, even in the Madhouse context, as an improvisational musician. It's yep. more of a contribution, more of a, here's my part, here's your part, and within this framework. Yeah. Do you... F it's a good Was way that sort of like the underlying context of it? It's like, that's not where I live. This is where you're going. This is who you need to surround I, yourselves with. I don't know if it was quite as much that is, is just... Um, Two comments about about that. Um, Prince could be extraordinarily spontaneous, okay, when he wanted to be. But when he was spontaneous, it was not to serve a purpose. It was just hmm. because he was just spontaneous. Madhouse was kind of the embodiment of that. I was never a fan of Madhouse. I never cared for the first Madhouse album ever. Mm -hmm. I like most of the second album, <laughs> mm -hmm. but Madhouse was, you know, the first Madhouse album. <laughs> I don't listen to that. There's, I, I, I kind of <laughs> like the last piece, the, the song called Eight. Eight. Mm -hmm. There is little else on that album that was ever of any interest to me at all. Now, that's just personal taste. Sure. Because on any given day, I'd like to think that Prince and I could go and make music that I might like. And we have. Mm -hmm. I've got stuff, I've got Madhouse stuff that we recorded years later that's never been released that I happen to think is much better than anything that was ever released. Mm -hmm. But that's just personal taste mm -hmm. as to what a particular song might be. Now, what the point was is that a lot, I've got my own private collection of jams, mm -hmm. you know, including the infamous flesh sessions and all of mm -hmm. that stuff. That from a standpoint uh -huh. of me wanting to listen is just pure music. Uh -huh. I enjoy much more. And it was completely spontaneous. When Prince, my thing with Prince is he would take the ideas that might come up spontaneously and then he would work them to death. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, th I think more with the kind of music that I was going to with Things Left Unsaid, if there is any one component of, of Prince's um, toolbox that wasn't as developed as the other aspects of, of his artistry, Prince did not have a grounding or a background in what we would refer to as Tin Pan Alley harmony. In hmm. other words, the harmony of the great American songbook mm -hmm. dating back to, you know, when you're talking about Duke Ellington, the Louis Armstrong, Paul Porter, Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. Billy Strayhorn, Jerome Kern, all of that stuff that was so much a fundamental aspect of what modern jazz was. Mm -hmm. 
and he could he could do things superficially but it real but once you scratch beneath the surface he didn't mm -hmm. have that vocabulary now mm. what's really important from, from from the standpoint of his career is that that's really irrelevant because you know the the structures and the harmonies of when doves cry or little red corvette or ballad of dorothy parker or mm -hmm. or strange relation or any other thing that he would do wasn't dependent on that so so to say that he didn't have that vocabulary is almost irrelevant because it wasn't something that was important for what he did mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. almost like suggesting that a classical a symphonic classical musician that cannot improvise that's irrelevant for that person's career you know you don't go you you, you know you don't go to hear a classical pianist play a play a, a beethoven piano concerto expecting him to be able to you know to play jazz mm -hmm. it's irrelevant so by the same token but i think prince understood that the music that i was going that i basically was based on and everything and things left unsaid even though there might be more advanced harmonies and structures that are more indicative of what was happening in the music in the 60s and 70s and after that but it's still so much predicated on the jazz harmonic vocabulary mm -hmm. that I grew up learning because this is what you have to know if you want to try to play this music. Prince, like I said, Prince's spontaneity could be incredible, but it was still always going to be limited by his harmonic vocabulary. So mm -hmm. if we were jamming mm -hmm. with Prince, mm -hmm. it was pretty much, well, I'm playing 20 minutes on one chord. You know, mm -hmm. that isn't going to, you know, in order for me to play a song, like I mentioned, like a time's gift or any of the, of the material on things left unsaid, that's a whole different thing. So just real quick, were you on the, uh, and I should know this, I'm tripping out. The, was it the expectation? His other sort of jazz? Mm -mm, that was no. Candy Dofer. No, that, okay. that was, that was Candy. I think. Have yeah. you heard that record? Um, I, I never heard it. I actually played a little bit of that music once in a rehearsal with him. But that that's, that's you know, but I don't know that if, if I did hear it was on, in order to just kind of get an idea of what it was. I got you. Know, the, the last, I think the last thing that I ever recorded with Prince was that, that thing that, that we did that he called News, N-E-W-S. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, now, so with that, how do you feel his harmonics or his skill or playing had it evolved that's a good point because we're 20 years past right yeah. um no one thing about prince is, is that <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an it's an interesting thing and and um i don't think news is anything that we couldn't have done 10 years before mm. yeah but okay. it's dependent on the musicians because in 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 the news thing on keyboards, we had Hernato Neto, mm -hmm, who was mm -hmm. his keyboard player at the time. I had known Hernato because I played with Hernato in a band with Sheila E. We called the E Train in 94 and 95, which was probably one of the most ridiculously incredible bands I ever played with. Mm -hmm. It was just mm -hmm. absolutely phenomenal. And from a, from a standpoint of his harmonic and complete knowledge of music, Renato Neto was hands down probably the most complete keyboard player Prince ever had. 
And I don't mean that as I don't mean that as an as a criticism of anybody else, the Matt Finks, the Tommy Elms, uh, particularly Lisa Coleman, who mm -hmm. had such a rich harmonic palette of her own. Mm -hmm. But Hernato mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. a beast, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. only with mm -hmm. a full mm -hmm. complement of of the jazz vocabulary, harmonic vocabulary, but because he came from from Brazil, he's got that whole thing. Mm. that is rhythmically so unique and what he adds to that. So having him on the news thing opened things up. So a lot of the things, so Prince is basically saying, you guys open it up and I'll follow you as best I can. And <laughs> Prince Hung, I mean, you know. Yeah. That, that 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 was cool. You're sending you know? me right now, Prince Hung. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for all of that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> here's 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 the interesting thing if prince was such an intrinsically um gifted musician mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that i am convinced that if there was anything that he really was interested in wanting to learn or grasp he could probably do it much more quickly than a lot of other people could but his interests mm -hmm. were what they were mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so and I'm, I'm not saying, you know, he doesn't owe me any apologies or explanations for anything that I might say. Gee, I wonder what Prince could have done if only he had been interested in doing that. That's not for me to say. But right. the fact is, is that I knew what, it, what a tremendous musician he was under everything else. And I would always have loved to say, you know, what if this dude had actually decided, I'm going to learn how to read and write music in order to broaden my mm -hmm. understanding of of that harmonic vocabulary that maybe I don't necessarily have would have been fascinating to see what he might have done you know with that but yet and still his catalog of music, music kind of speaks for itself so mm -hmm. it's like yeah. you know dude you were just fine yeah <laughs> all right so we're going to dive into um some more songs on things left unsaid. And I want to play the intro, but I'm not going to play the song because you guys know what happened when I played the song last time. I just totally like get lost in the music. Um, so for those of you who, don't, who may not have heard this in a while or you weren't on that episode, let's play the opening lines, which is one of my favorite, like just the layered horns that you do, Eric, here is just mind blowing. So let's give it a listen. So, Eric, talk to us about Aguadilla. Well, uh, for, first of all, it's uh, Aguadilla. Uh, the, uh, the, thank the you. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, Aguadilla is a uh, town or village in, in Puerto Rico. Um, as, 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 far as, as far as that intro, um, that, that's just Charlie Parker. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's just Charlie Parker. That's John Coltrane. That's Miles Davis. That's just like, that's Duke Ellington. That's Count Basie. That's basically the, the um, what you're doing. I think there were five saxophones. I think I actually played alto on that. I very rarely play alto saxophone, mm -hmm, but I did mm -hmm. on that. Um, I think I just used two altos, two tenors, and a baritone, which is a classic combination of saxophone section from a, a traditional big band whether Duke Ellington, Count Basie, whatever. Um, the harmonic um, point is, is what's called closed voicing. 
if you really were to be able to isolate every instrument, the alto and the baritone are playing the same notes, mm -hmm. but they're an octave apart because the baritone is pitched an octave below the alto. The other alto and the two tenors are providing the, harm the harmony notes in between. It's a style of writing that dates back to the 1920s. Mm. I mean, you know, it's just that I'm putting it in a context. The actual melody, if you can call it a melody, is what I wrote as an intro. So if there's anything, but but the style of writing, God, I was doing that when I was in, in, in music school. So it worked, you know, and, and it's, it's just a fun style of writing. I said, you know. I got an opportunity to do something like that in order to show off, say, hey, I can do this too. <laughs> you know? So um, that's all that was. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to the um, the credits here because on the CD in the in the liner notes, it says composed by Eric Lees and Prince. And the reason why, according to Prince Vault, that Prince gets that co-writing um, credit is that um, you sort of cribbed a line uh, from Desire, yeah. And is that the reason just yeah. to make sure? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's a little, a little counter line that go, ba -da 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 -da. that line kind of goes through the whole background yeah. of, of Agua D and that, and that I, you know. Yeah. yeah. So another one of my really favorite songs is, um, Isla Mujeres. If I'm saying mm -hmm. that correctly, I'm going to play a little bit for us. Gonna get listen to a little bit. We played this one last week. I think this is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. It was composed by is it Santi Vega? Santi Vega, yeah. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful song. Can, so, Eric, please talk to us about this one. Um, Gil, Gil Goldstein brought this song to me, um, knowing that that I had um, an absolute love of Latin music, Brazilian music, particularly Cuban and Puerto Rican music. Um, my favorite musician, my favorite living musician for probably the last 30, 40 years has been Eddie Palmieri, mm. um, who was like the son of, you know, just just... In, in the context of Afro-Cuban salsa music, Eddie Palmieri is the Thelonious Monk, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, all in one. Um, one of my absolute tre most treasured relationships in, in music is, is with Eddie Palmieri. The fact that I've had the opportunity to play without Eddie Palmieri on several occasions is as is, is much the high point of my life as anything I could imagine. Um, anyway, um, Gil brought this song, Ilo Mujeres, um, by Spanish composer Santi Vega. And um, we didn't really do too much. The version that, that Santi Vega had done, we, we pretty much stuck to that basic vibe. Um, but I added the, the piano montuno, the you know, this, mm -hmm. this Afro-Cuban montuno. That we put in to basically give it a little bit more of a, a, a Caribbean vibe than just a straight up um, Brazilian or Spanish. Um, and the horn players, the three horn players on this album, Brian Lynch on trumpet, Charlie Sepulveda on trumpet, Conrad Irwig on trombone. Um, they are on the album because they were the poor horn section for Eddie Palmieri at that point. Uh -huh. 
So it was like, I'm like, you know, I'm like looking at Gil Goldstein. He's hooked up, he lives in New York. And we're going to do a lot of this record, a lot of the recording for this album in New York. And I'm saying, do you know any of those, you know those guys? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, um, you need to see if you can get them on my record. So like, <laughs> I said, okay, Gil, do your thing, be, be the producer. So that was that hookup. Um, and in fact, um, Charlie Sepulveda was the trumpet player with me in the band years later, this band that we had with Sheila E, the E-Train. Brian Lynch also played in that band. So that was the beginning of my relationship with them. Um, what they brought, unfortunately, there was no real room in the album for any of them to really solo. There's some trumpet obligados on Isla Mujeres that you hear little trumpet answers to the saxophone line. That was Charlie, Charlie Sepulveda. Um, but the sound and the character of their phrasing that they brought to the horn parts on this album was just absolutely disrupted gorgeous. It was one of the most um, enjoyable aspects of the recording the album to, to, to have them come in and play the arrangements that I'd written for this album. How, how did that feel? It sounded like you were geeking out, like when you're in the studio and you're listening back to this. Like, that feels you like know, what one one of the most wonderful experiences that you can have as an artist particularly when you're working on your own music is i knew what these guys were going to bring to it but just knowing it and then hearing it mm -hmm. is a different thing mm -hmm. and you can get a lot of wonderful wonderful musicians that are still guns for hire and they might come in and they might do exactly what you want them to do but you realize that for them this session is just one of two or three sessions they're doing this week mm. and as soon as they're out the door they've forgotten about this one mm. you know so you take advantage of what they're going to bring and said okay he did exactly what i needed them to do mm -hmm. but beyond that is a thank you very much here's your check have a nice day um with charlie brian and conrad because they were already a section that had been working together for years i knew that they had a sound and a cohesiveness that was going to really bring something special all of the saxophone parts and the ensembles that they were going to be recording to had already been done. So they were coming in and listening to the tracks as, as they were pretty much completed by that time. Um, I, I remember specifically the most um, ambitious parts were on, on a song called Two Sisters, which was written by Alfonso Johnson. Um, the last few minutes of, of that song has an outvamp that that is is a just a cascade of, of of these horn lines and i had already done the saxophone parts so they're coming in and they have to match their phrasing to what was already there you know um and i, I mean you, you know i had no no worries about them nailing it there was a middle where they were doing one aspect of it. And Charlie Sepulveda, who is the lead trumpet player, he's the top voice. So basically, that's what really is going to give character to the whole section. Because you hear that top voice more prominently just by the fact it's the highest notes in, 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 the, in the section. And I remember Charlie stopping the other guys and said, he said, Brian Conrad, we got to tighten this up a little bit. Listen to where Eric is. He's laying just a little bit behind the beat. So we got to hold back. We can't push that. Let's really just be sure we're in the pocket with him because that's what we're here to do. And when you're sitting in the control room and listening mm -hmm. to cats come in, off the, you know, come in and, and say that, all I can do is just be, have a big smile on my face. I said, 
this is what this 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 is what you want you know th this when cats come in and they're listening to it and they said you know we can come in just do what we do but no let's let's this is you know we're here to make eric's music mm. what it has what what we can do so let's let's listen to that and just those little nuances like that you know i mean i'm not i'm not i'm just sitting there man this is killing all of a sudden charlie <laughs> stopped and said no we need to nail mm. this lay it back a little bit mm -hmm. we can do this mm -hmm. and charlie's you know and then they come in the, and when they come in and they're coming in the booth to listen to the playback and i can look at their eyes and see what they're reacting to and then you know that these are the guys you want on mm -hmm. your record yeah and this recorded at paisley park no those oh. sessions were done in new york okay I will most most of the basic tracks, um, most of them except for a couple, were done at Paisley only because we were flying in Alejandro Acuna and Alfonso Johnson from California. Gil Goldstein and my piano player David Budway were coming in from New York and Pittsburgh. So geographically, doing it at Paisley made the best sense. Once we had done the basic tracks at Paisley, and I had done a bunch of overdubs at Paisley, then I went to New York. And everything else was done in New York, and all the mixing for the album was done in New York. Yeah. Hmm. I, I was going to ask, when you have these musicians that you respect, and they're coming in, is there also a thing where they know, like, Eric uh, is a part of Prince's camp? There's a, is there a certain type of respect or prestige where they go, like, we got to come in? And get down like we can't this ain't just some like you said a work for hire like are, is that sort of a unspoken respect that okay we know what you a part of and we know we heard about this guy he's great you, you great you know this ain't a regular project for us is that sort of vibe going on too no you said no no <laughs> i doubt if any of the musicians on this album ever regularly listened to anything prince had ever done they might have they were told this is guy they might have listened to prince's music in order to say well i need to learn who this guy is i have no mm -hmm. illusions that alejandro acuna alvo johnson had ever heard of me before would mm -hmm. have no reason to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or charlie sepulveda or brian lynch or conrad Irwin. now prince has a reputation as as an incredible artist so even with musicians like that who may not be familiar with Prince's music, because it may just not be the music that they normally listen to. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't been involved with Prince, Prince isn't the music that I wouldn't normally have listened to, mm -hmm. to be absolutely honest. Um, but they understand that, okay, if this guy played with Prince, well, that says something. Mm -hmm. But About basically, you. yeah. <laughs> at least, but, but, there's enough, but, but to be absolutely honest, there's another thing. They're reacting to Gil Goldstein because they know Gil Goldstein, who's mm. my producer. And okay. Gil Goldstein is telling them, and he's telling us, hey, I'm producing this artist, a young guy. He's been with Prince for years. He's got an opportunity mm -hmm. to do his own thing. And this is what he's into. This is what we're going to try to do. And we want you to come in to do the session. And by the way, this is what it pays. Okay. Say that mm. part. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. having mm -hmm. said that, Alfonso and, and, and Alex were just absolutely fabulous you know they they took it to heart mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you, you know i i mean um alfonso johnson is just one of the one of the nicest most sweetest guys in the world professional um and 
And I, I made sure to tell Gil, I said, tell Alfonso, please bring some music of his. Because I already knew Alfonso could be a wonderful writer for things that he had written and his contributions to Weather Report for the years that he was with that band. Mm -hmm. And this song, Two Sisters of his, um, I was just glad that he had never written it when he was still working with Weather Report. So I'm glad <laughs> they hadn't recorded it, you know. Because to me, it's my favorite song on the album. I mean, beginning to end. Wow. Um, I just think mm -hmm. it's an absolutely incredible piece of music. And the basic arrangement of the song is, is his. But he gave me carte blanche to do all the horn orchestrations and harmonies with it. And for him to just say, hey, Eric, you know, here's the song. This is what we do. Go for it. Whatever else you want to do mm -hmm. with it. You know, and, and I'm all, you know, that's, that's, that's an attitude you really dig. Um, and, and just, you know, being able, and they were guys that would basically said, okay, okay, Eric, what do you need us to do for this song? What are you looking for? You know, so, I mean, we're here to serve the music. So that, once again, that's, that's, that's what you want. Um, and of course, the other thing was, is it was a little odd for me because I still have to, I still have to try to at least fake the attitude this is my record, so it's going to be what I want. But right, I got to keep tell, you. Gotta I keep gotta tell, you know, I got to tell you, I'm sitting there trying to mm -hmm. play this music, and I'm looking. I said, "There's freaking Alfonso Johnson and Alejandro Cuna," <laughs> you know. So like, it was like, oh, you know, I mean, these really, the, you know, these really are heroes of mine. So, uh -huh. yeah. so I actually want to ask this question from the chat because the chat goes by fast, and I don't want to lose it. So the question is, I'm pretty sure Prince was not involved in the artwork of both solo albums, but did he, but did the designs go past him? Did he have to approve them? Did he have any remarks? Um, I don't think he, like I said, on Things Left Unsaid, I don't think he saw anything about that album until it was actually done, which would have included the, the, the artwork for that, obviously. Um, I don't remember at what point whether he had any i don't think he had anything to do with with the final artwork for times squared either i suspect that i don't know what process it was actually shown to him mm -hmm. you know if if um times squared might have been shown to him before with you know before it actually say went to press so i assume that if there had been something about it that he really objected to he would have let us know but to be absolutely honest, I either don't remember or wasn't really involved in any discussions or, or any aspect of that. But th things left unsaid, I'm pretty sure, was just he got handed the finished product and said, oh, by the way, there it is. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you yeah. for that. Um, so I was actually, you know, doing my Googles, as Michael Dean would say, and I actually did um, come across um, Santi Vega's Isla uh, Mujeres on his 1992 album of mm -hmm. the same title. And so do you know, I know that he wrote the song. Do you know if he recorded the specific version, I'm assuming after you recorded yours or? No, he, his, his was done. He was, his was done before. Okay. Because that, that's, because that's what Gil brought me. Gil, he said, listen to this song and see if Got this is something, you, you know, that you, that you'd, you'd like to try to do something with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. And, and one, and once again, that, that, that's what makes an album like that so cool, because like I said, I had a stack of my own music. Mm -hmm. I could have done a whole album of like, you know, 10 songs of just my own stuff. But it was like, I, I you know, I need to broaden my world. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of this. So it was like, Gil, bring me stuff. Um, 
the song on the album Soldier Stings. It's a, a song by Tom Waits. I'm familiar with Tom Waits, but, you know, Tom Waits wasn't somebody that I listened to a lot. And Gil's bringing me the song by Tom Waits. And I'm scratching my head. Tom Waits song? I said, what the hell am I going to do with that? And he said, no, just listen to it. The lyrics on the song actually are absolutely wonderful. You don't get, obviously, you don't get the benefit of what the lyrics are from, from my version. And I listened to the song and it was like, wow. You know, and I thought immediately, I said, oh, this is something I really like to do on baritone. Not tend, you know, do it on baritone to give it a different character. And I looked at Gil. Gil, aside being from a, a keyboard player, is also a wonderful accordion player. And I happen to love accordion. I mean, a lot of people, Lawrence, well, corny ass shit. No, accordion is a beautiful freaking instrument. You hear it on Isla Mujeres. You hear it on Soldier Stings. Um, and I said, you know, this would really be a, a, a really cool thing. So it, it's, to this day, it's, it's my favorite piece of music that I ever recorded on baritone saxophone. I, I just love the song and what we did with it. And that was Gill's arrangement. I mean, he basically said, okay, let me arrange it. He added some har some harmonic parts to it for the solo spot and everything. So basically I said, okay, I'll, you know, bring me what, what, what you're hearing on this and brought in. So this is what we did. Um, that's not a song that would have ever occurred to me to have done left of my own devices. So that's what you're looking for in a producer. That's, mm -hmm. that's maybe hearing something in me that I'm not going to hear. They said, I could maybe hear Eric doing something a little bit left, you know, left field that he wouldn't know. And so let me bring in this and see what that, and, and those are the things that you actually love because it puts me, it puts me in a different position than I'm going to be in just left of my own device. So it's, it's, it's like, let me see what I can do with stuff that isn't just coming from me. So. So I, I know you've already spoken a lot, of, well, not a lot, but a little bit about Two Sisters. I want to play a little bit for our audience, and, um, and if you could talk some more about it, that would be lovely. So before we get into it, um, Nick Feldman actually has a question. Uh, what synths were used on both albums? Do you remember? Oh, God. Um, I would imagine. Well, let me see. Um, I probably used a Roland D50 on Times Squared only because I was using what, what instruments that were just at Paisley. Mm -hmm. I, used, I, I used to use a Prophet VS back in those days. Um a lot of the synths that were used on things left unsaid were Gil Goldstein's. And he, he had, I don't know what he had. He had tons of stuff. In fact, um, he had a friend that came in that provided some of the synthesizer sounds. That was a guy who had done sound effects for the alien movies. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. 
and he he came in with shit that was just like oh my god in fact um the the, la the last song on the album is called commuting and at the beginning of the end of the song you hear a sound that sounds like kind of like a bus you know going down going down the street and that was sounds that this guy brought in you know and he said well here's a sound might be cool for this song and i'm here and said okay why not you know that's, that's actually one of my favorite songs off the album is commuting and it's because of those bookends of those sound effects because it really creates a mood for the song yeah so th this is what this guy had so I, I mean he had custom you know custom designed sounds of his own which is why gil brought him in and said, well you know this guy got all kinds of unique sounds so beyond you know beyond the more common instruments of that era like i said we're talking early 1990s so whatever with you know like i said i remember there was the roland d50 that was a synth everybody was using back then prophet vs and some of the others i on the song um time's gift there's a the synths on that i did most of that using my old arp odyssey which was a synthesizer dating back to the mid 70s that i still had and loved old analog synthesizer that i that i used on that um other than that it could have you know rhodes pianos got a lot of rhodes pianos and things like that um i, I want to make mention on two sisters that the, the pian pianist on the record um david budway had been playing in my band david budway's friend of mine from pittsburgh he has lived in new york played in new york for years now um is one of the finest and most well-respected jazz pian pianists in New York, has been for years. Um, his piano playing on, on the album is absolutely just superb. And particularly on Two Sisters, during the out vamp, where all the horns um, are playing, um, David is playing all these tremendous piano fills between between the horn lines. And it's just, it, it, it's just he's just kicking it and grooving it so hard with what he's playing on piano. It's just absolutely you know, one of one of my favorite parts of the album is is, is what he brought. And he also he he's uh, the piano soloist on on Time's Gift also. So I want to mention to him because he he was still one of my dearest friends and one of the finest pianists I've I've ever worked with. So we're actually so speaking of commuting, I think commuting is the last song I have for Times Square that I wanted to talk about, and. Um, I do want to play that that part that you're talking about because I love it so. So um, let's give it a listen. This is one of those songs I could listen. I could literally listen to it on repeat for 24 hours, and I would never get tired of it. It puts you in this—I don't know—this really beautiful mood that you just want to live there. So, uh, if do you mind talking about commuting? Um, yeah. For, first of all, I got to say that that to that extent, what really makes that song work more than anything else, Alejandro Acuna's drumming and percussion mm -hmm. work on that. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely just phenomenal. And probably the closest that you're going to get on this album of really understanding while Alejandro Acuna was with Weather Report mm. for the years that he was with him, because this was kind of, you know, that kind of a little closer to that kind of vibe than maybe anything else on the album. Um, the song I actually wrote 
back in the late seventies. It was oh, a wow. song that I just, yeah. And, and I think I did a demo on a little demo on it with some friends of mine. Um, that's as far as it went. So it was one of those things I just had in my back pocket and, you know, brought out and, and, and Gil Goldstein, he said, yeah, this is something that we could really do some cool things with. Um, Gil actually added some parts to it. Gil added, um, the harmonic progression that we use for the, for the, for the main saxophone solo. Um, but the, you know, it's, it's because the song itself is rather simple and, and, and it's just, you know, these kind of, um, long spread out chords that just kind of float. That's the kind of song that <clears throat> is really made or, or not made by what the band is going to do with it. Um, and like I said, both Alfonso and, and Alec, Alex were just superb on that. So that, that's, they're, they're just kicking it. I mean, they're, they're just <laughs> grooving it into the ground. So, you know, that's, that's really what makes that work. Um, there is one other song I would like to make mention of on the sure. album, a song that was called Yaounde. Hmm. Um, that was a song that it basically it started as, as a sequence that I had done um, and brought in with all, all of the basic keyboards and a lot of the percussion that was sample percussion that I had used to bring in. And just as a shell of a song, I said, what can we do with this? Anything we can do with this to give it something else? Um, Alejandro Kuna put on um, conga drums on it. There no, there, there's no trap set on it. He's just playing congas along with everything else. Um, Alfonso Johnson played an instrument called the Chapman Stick, which is a which is a, a guitar-like instrument that basically is fed through a synthesizer, and you can get all different kinds of sounds from it. Um, and he played it on that and gives this kind of droning sound to it, to the whole thing that really added another dimension. But here's where it really got interesting. We had basically what I thought that the song was basically done the way I wanted. And I was thrilled with this. It is everything I want this song to be. When we got to New York, we had arranged for percussionist Mino Sinulu. Mino Sinulu was one of, and still is, just tremendous um, percussionist who would, once again, had been a member of Weather Report. He had been Miles Davis's uh, percussionist for several years. So his, I was certainly aware of, of Mino's work. And, and Gil said, I can bring in Mino Sinulu. I said, please do. Hmm. Bring him on. So Mino came in to do, he actually added percussion on Two Sisters, some other songs. And we thought about and, and, and Gil said, maybe you can add some things to Yaunde. And I said, well, you know, there's an awful lot of percussion already on there. I don't know if there's any space for anything more. But Mino had listened to the song. He, Gil had, had given Mino the song. He said, listen to this and see if anything else you think you could bring to this. So Mino came in and he said, yeah, I've got some spots in there. I think I could add some things. So he started bringing out all these instruments. And, and a percussionist like that, he makes a lot of his own instruments. He takes pieces of scrap metal and welds them together to make all kinds of odd things and have chime effects and bell sounds and, you know, just really cool, unique sounds. So he's got all of this stuff that he's bringing in. It looks like a scrapyard, but he lays it all out on the floor in the studio and you just roll the track. And this guy added all of these parts that filled in just all these little gaps that just added just another dimension to the song. Then he says to me, he said, Eric, I went so far and was bold to write lyrics for the song. 
<laughs> from a standpoint of a jazz guy, I'm like, oh, oh you do, oh, you do, oh, 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 gee, isn't that wonderful? I wrote lyrics to my song. Oh, yeah, that's just when I want lyrics. <laughs> and I looked and I said, they're not in English, are they? He said, oh, no, no. He said, Mina Sanuma is from, from the island of Martinique, which is basically the language of, of um, Martinique is basically a French Creole kind of thing. Mm. So he wrote the, 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 the lyrics in his native language. But I'm still thinking, I said, you know, that song, I don't need, I don't need some guy yodeling on this song. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. everything is just exactly where I want it. Now, of course, I got director's cut. So it's like, I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, go on. Yeah, sure, sure, why not? Throw it on there. Because if I don't like it, it it's not going to be on the record. You know, so it's, it's, no, it's no big thing. He starts singing, and once again, within 30 seconds, I'm like, I thought I knew what this song was about. Hmm. I didn't have a clue. You know, within a minute, it's like, I can't imagine the song without these, without what he did vocally on it. It's absolutely just stunning and hmm. brought a whole character to the song that I had written. And I thought, well, this is my song. Ain't no one going to tell me what my song's about. Well, he did. He came in to just add in another dimension to it. Once again, those are the situations that you find yourself in. And when you can sit back and, and have that and just learn something about your own music that you didn't know. Those are the circumstances that I, lo that, that I love more than any other situation you can be in. And I just looked and I said, dude, man, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and saying, oh, by the way, I got some lyrics for your song. You know, tell me what you got. Mm. And that those are the moments that 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 you, you know I treasure. You know, those are really the coolest moments in music for me. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up to what, you know, that kind of situation. And 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 to be honest, what was so great for, of, of this album was there were a lot of moments like that. So mm. anyway. So one, I forgot, there's one last question I want to ask about things left unsaid. So on Prince Vault, I read that technically Pacemaker was originally recorded to be on Things Left Unsaid, but yeah. it says that you didn't like it. Um, yeah. Can you yeah. We, yeah. There, there, were, there were a couple other songs that we did for, for the album that, that didn't make it. Um, Pacemaker was one. It was cool. It just wasn't. It wasn't what I wanted the song to be. It was just a little bit off. Um, and we didn't need it. You know, by the time we really had everything else together, I said, you know, you know, if I'd really been adamant about it, we might have been able to rework it. But I said, you know, it's not exactly where I want it to be. We don't need it. I also did a version, uh, a recorded a version of Prince's song, Venus de Milo. Oh. The, little, the, the piano, you know, the piano instrument yeah. from, mm -hmm. from the Parade mm -hmm. album. What? And um, and basically, uh, I, I just used a tenor and flute playing in unison the basic melody part of it. Um, hmm. The reason I didn't use it is because I liked that song too much. And what I ended up doing with it, really, I mean, I love, I love what, what we, what, what, how it ended up. I mean, I've, I've got, you know, I've got my own rough mix on it that I listened to occasionally. I said, boy, it really sounds great. It really worked. Hmm. But 
there was nothing about it that added anything that you wouldn't have already heard or felt from Prince's version. Mm. So it was basically like all I did was a reading of the song. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was really cool, but it was like there was no point to it, you know, mm -hmm. because if, if all I could think of it is, boy, it really sounds pretty. You know, I had really my, my flute sounded great that day. Everything, you know, everything, the phrasing, everything. But at the end of the day, it was like, eh, I don't really need to listen to this any more than I would want to listen to Prince's original version of it. So what we actually did then is Gil Goldstein wrote a completely different arrangement for the song, a completely different treatment for it that we recorded in New York, which I didn't like. <laughs> Basically, what came down and said, Gil, eh, no, love you, but we'll put this one aside. By then, we had already decided that the obligatory radio song was going to be the, the Tears for Fear song that we did, Women in Chains, mm. which we had already done. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, once again, this is what we got. I think we have an album. We're cool. So, yeah. Awesome. So we're going to transition to Times Square, but Eric, I want to make sure, do you have water? You got water. I was going to say, like, make sure you have water because of... I'm good. I, yeah, okay. Awesome. <laughs> so we're going to play one of... My favorite song off of Times Square. Um, it is such an amazing opener for any album. And um, we're talking about lines. <laughs> Everybody should know about lines. And we're going to play a little bit. But I wanted, But I read that this was actually the last song that you recorded for the album. Mm -hmm. And then also, it is all you. But every time I listen to it, particularly the keyboards, I don't know, I think of Prince, even though I know it's all you. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, like, um, how did you go about, like, why did you write this? Is there something that, that you intentionally wanted to have as an opener for the album and you didn't feel like you had an opener? Can you talk a little bit, like, set it up for us? Uh, the song was a complete afterthought. First of all, the song I had written and played in my band, no, never, never played it, but it was a song that I had written for my band in Pittsburgh back in 1978. So I have only some rehearsals of the basic groove. The song was never really developed beyond that. It was just a basic groove and, and that I had. Once again, it was just something that was in my back pocket. Um, when we were working on, and when finishing up Times Squared, um, we had decided that there needed to be one, we needed one more song. And the song Aguadilla on Things Left Unsaid, I had done a previous version of wow. for, Times, for, for Times Square. Got it. And the song then was called Portofino, a different title. I called it Portofino. And the reason I didn't use the original version when it came time to do Things Left Unsaid is once again, Gil Goldstein listened to the original version. He said, you know, it's cool but it could use something else to it. And he said to me, he said, I know you love um, Afro-Cuban music. Why don't you put in a Montuno, ver you, you know, add something to it that goes into a more strictly salsa kind of thing to it, which I did on Aguadilla. Halfway through the song, it has a breakdown and it goes into a Montuno. A bang, dun, 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 you know, all that stuff. So that wasn't on the original version when I called it Portofino. So 
I had recorded the song Portofino, but still wasn't completely sold on it for Times Square. So I said, you know, what the hell? Let me take this old groove that I've been sitting on for over 10 years and see if I can do something with that. So that's why Lines came into it. Um, Lines is the only song on that album that was entirely mine, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else on that album had been music um, that was came from the vault, you know, unfinished music of Prince's that he had basically given me. He said, here's a whole bunch of songs in the vault. Take any of this and do whatever you want with it. The only thing that, that had been completed was Dopamine Rush, mm-hmm. which was originally like a 17-minute piece that I took a knife to and basically said, I like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that, that's out, and compress it down to about six and a half, seven minutes, and that's what went on went on the album. Um, but Lines was an afterthought. It was like I said, it was like, okay, we need one more thing, to see, let's see if this works. So, And at that point, um, I didn't have the time to um, find the musicians that, I would have probably have liked to have worked with me on, on lines. I, I basically went into it starting as like, well, let me do a demo of this and see if I can take it from there. But by the time I got done with it and Prince liked and Prince heard it and he said, no, I think this is cool the way it is. I said, all right, I'll take your word for it. So that's, that's once again, boss, the boss is happy. I'm happy. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually my favorite song off Times Square. We're going to play a little oh, bit wow, of it. Okay. And then um, I want to ask you one more question. And then if it, there's anything else you want to say about it. So let's listen to my one of my favorite songs of all time. So one of the things I love about the song is the percussion. Um, And obviously, you know, the horn lines are just bananas. Um, I wanted to ask, I noticed that it was um, co-written by Atlanta Bliss or Matt Bliston, Mm -hmm. but he didn't perform on it. So it sounds like you just, he wasn't, um, you know, around or you didn't have time to call him in. The reason he has a composing credit on it is there's one part of a, of a long synthesizer part was kind of an organ sound that was a transcription of a solo that matt had played on a live recording of a song that we had done in our band back in pittsburgh in the late 70s mm-hmm. from 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 just a, from a, a gig that we were doing he was playing this wonderful trumpet solo and i happened to have heard and i said boy why don't i transcribe that and throw it in the middle of of this so wow. You had to really know your music, I mean, to be able to pull something like that from a performance from years ago and then use it later. Like, you obviously are archive, you archive everything, I would imagine. <laughs> I am the supreme egotist. I listen to a lot of, I listen to a lot of my own music. <laughs> hey, I'm not mad at that. <laughs> the, the, the band that I, I had a band in Pittsburgh from for about a year and a half, some 77 to 78, called Taken Names. And Matt was in that band with me. Um, and that's where I learned to be the musician that I wanted to be. 
I mean, we were basically a cover band. You know, basically, I mean, we were an R&B funk cover band. We were a bar band. We played, you know, in the year and a half that that band was together, we played almost 375 gigs. I'm going to play five, six nights a week, week after mm. week after week, um, just in the local bars in, in, in Pittsburgh. It was an eight-piece band. Um, to this day, it was still maybe my favorite band I was ever in. Now, of course, mm. it was my band. So that mm-hmm. that has something mm-hmm. to, to do with it, mm-hmm. but um, but it was where I learned and had the opportunity to to grow as an arranger, as a as a writer, as a player, and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was a great time to be an R and B funk cover band because you mm-hmm. had Stevie Wonder at his best, you had Earth mm-hmm. Wind and Fire at their best, mm-hmm. you had George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic at their best, you had AWB, you had Cool and the Gang, wow. you had all of that, you know, Isley yeah. Brothers. And that was what we were. But we used to take that music and try to do all different kinds of things with it, you know. Mm. And the cool thing was then, as long as you kept the people on the dance floor, we could play on top of the groove anything we wanted, pretty much. And that's what we did. And we also did um, our own music. Now, our own music was almost entirely instrumental stuff and more fusion-y, weather report kind of stuff. But in the clubs back in those days, we wouldn't start playing till 1030 at night. We'd play from 10, 1030 at night until two, you know, like maybe three, you know, 15 minute sets. Mm. The first set, the people are just coming in and that's where the people want to listen. So we could play more of the, you know, more of the instrumental, more of the jazzy kind of stuff. The first set, okay. by the time we're hitting the second set, it's about 1130, 12. Then you got the place packed and it's all the dancers. So now we're just mm. to groove you to death. We right. could take a Cool and the Gang song like Open Sesame mm. and we could sit on that for 10 minutes. Wow. And we could just, and and Matt, Matt Blisson, he played electric trumpet. He had a trumpet going through a wah wah pedal like Miles was doing back then. And we would just keep that groove going and give give it to Matt and just let him play some shit. And I'm playing keyboards mm. in that band besides the horn. So, like I said, as long as we kept the folks on the dance floor, we were. You know, we were so that's where things like lines come from, because we might just segue into that groove and just mm. stay on that and just like play all kinds of stuff over it. So those are, you know, and I've got I've got a lot of of, of recordings, live recordings of that band. Really? You know, so, yeah. so that's kind of was my. You know, my source for a lot of stuff going years later, mm. I could always go eh, see if see, I find something we did. Oh, that was cool. Let me see if I can take that and maybe develop it. You know, so that that's yeah. What was there ever a talk of you and Atlanta Bliss being a group? Like before you before I became Eric Lee's solo or or even a part of Madhouse. I was curious why it didn't seem like he was um well like I say we 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 played together in so many bands. We, you know, Matt and I started playing together. We went we we were in music school together, so we knew each other back then the early 70s. We started playing together in a lounge band in 1975 with a with a, a singer piano player, you know, basically playing like holiday in hotel lounges where you're playing old standards and contemporary stuff and you're doing medleys of stuff like Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, I mean, stuff like that. But you're playing, you're playing four or five hours a night, six mm-hmm. nights a week, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and doing a lot of old standards. And that's where, where Matt and I got our shit together. Right. So mm-hmm. years, you know, years later, we had these bands that we had together. Um, after we were w- w- with Prince, Matt moved, left, left Minneapolis and went back to Atlanta. I mean, he's from Pittsburgh, 
but he was living in Atlanta. He moved back to Atlanta, and he's he's been back in Pittsburgh for years. Matt Matt doesn't doesn't play professionally any longer. has has him for mm. years. Um, he had actually in 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 the early '80s he had a band of his own in Pittsburgh called the Parker Brothers, which was a very very popular bar band also. Okay. Um, so no, we we never really you know the opportunity never really presented itself for him and I to really have like a group that was just going to be based around the two of us, you know, because basically. I was a leader and he was a leader too, mm-hmm. you know, when it came down mm-hmm. to doing his own thing. So, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. So the next song I want to talk about from Times Square is my second favorite and it's Kenya. I want to play a little bit first. We got Prince on drums. We couldn't talk over that part. <laughs> so, we got Atlanta Bliss on trumpet. We got Larry Frantangelo on percussion. And this is another song that was written by you, Eric. So talk to us about Kenya, please. Well, the, the basic the basic track was just Prince on drums and myself playing the, the lead tenor. Um, it was recorded during the sessions for the second Madhouse album, for, Mad, for Madhouse 16. Mm-hmm. Um Sheila was, you know, Sheila was the drummer on much of about half of, of Madhouse 16. Levi Cecil was on bass on most of it. Um, but during, during the sessions, um, one afternoon, we were taking a break and Prince just hollered and said, hey, Eric, grab your horn. And Prince got on drums and started just playing that that groove. And he said, just just play whatever, just you and me, just extemporaneous stuff. And we, you know, might have gone on for four or five minutes or whatever. And that, and, and that was it, just the two of us. That and that went in 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 the can, went in the vault. Um, when it comes time for me to be working on the music for Times Square, um, Prince had reminded me about that. He said, "Listen, listen to that thing that you and I did, and see if there's anything there that that you know you think you could." And I, I listened to it. I said, "Well, you know, I mean, it's Prince playing nice groove. I'm not playing anything of any." great value on it. I'm, I'm just honking and squealing, really, you know. Um, I love it, Eric. <laughs> but, no, I mean, you, you know, it, it was just, you know, there's no harmonic content because there's no chordy instruments, so I'm just playing whatever. But I thought about it, I said, you know, maybe this is something for me to try to show off as an arranger. Mm-hmm. So I took I took it, and, and I spent about two days on that. Um, trying to find some kind of harmonic anchor that I could then construct a horn arrangement around. And basically the, 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 I don't say inspiration is maybe too hyperbolic a word. Um, It's my attempt to try to do a Duke Ellington kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Duke Mm -hmm. Ellington, um, wrote music that was very similar to that back in the 1930s. I mean, there was a there was a, a piece that he called the Liberian Suite. And then there was an also uh, another one that he called the Harlem Suite. Hmm. That, that were long form 
pieces of music. Um, and I went and listened to those, you know, to try to get an idea. I said, this is something, it, 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 the kind of Afro beat that Prince was playing kind of reminded me a little bit of the kind of things that Duke Ellington was doing back in the 1930s and 40s. And I said, you know, maybe I can try to construct something around it that is, you know, that will kind of pur purposely remind me of that. So that's basically what it was. It was just, just me trying to, to write something that, that um, trying to be Duke Ellington. So that's, that's not an easy thing to do. No, no, definitely you know. not. Definitely not. So there's a question in the chat and I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to spin it a little bit, too. And, um, you know, does Mr. Lee's remember if he and Prince ever discussed African music in any way? And my twist on that is, did you and Prince talk about Duke Ellington um, at any point? Yeah, we used to talk about Duke Ellington. We never talk about African music. You know, one thing that I always regret is that Prince didn't talk about music a lot. Hmm. I mean, in the manner that I would be talking mm -hmm. about music, which is a good thing in Wenry because, you know, Prince was too busy doing music mm -hmm. than to talk about it. But hmm. the kind of conversations that I would have with, you know, so many musicians that I'm close to or whatever, one of my dearest friends in music is, is, is Christian McBride, hmm. you know. Um, in fact, Christian was just in town a few weeks ago and we had dinner, my, my brother and I, we've known each other for years. Christian, first of all, is a James Brown fanatic. I mean, work with James Brown. I mean, great jazz bass player. But I mean, the kind of conversations that I would have with 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 a Christian McBride or with Branford Marcellus, who's an all, all, also a very good friend of mine, and the guys that I grew up with, those are the kind of conversations you'd have with Prince about music. Because unfortunately, Prince could not ever detach himself from himself. So the conversation always was going to be from the perspective of Prince and his music which was fine, but it still wasn't, there was never going to be some objectivity to it beyond a certain extent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes he could get him close, but he wasn't ever going to go too far off script. Um, I knew he was aware of Duke Ellington because his father was just a Duke Ellington fanatic, of course. Mm -hmm. But I, I, this is, the, Okay, I have to, I'm gonna have to be careful about this story because I really don't want to offend the Prince, you know, crowd. But I think they'll, I, I think they'll, they'll understand this. I try to put it in this context. There's an old phrase that says, "No good deed goes unpunished." Yes, you heard that, right? Yes. All right. So I gave Prince an album. I said, of all the Duke Ellington stuff that you might never have been aware of, more than anything else, this is what I'm sure you would absolutely love. And I gave Prince a copy of Duke Ellington at Newport. Which is mm -hmm. a famous concert from 1956 where the centerpiece of the recording of the concert was a piece that Duke Ellington had written back in the 30s called Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue. The thing goes on for about 20 minutes. And in the midst of it, it's just really a blues, you know, just with this all this tremendous orchestration as only Duke Ellington could write. But in the middle of it, is a saxophone solo by a guy named Paul Gonzalez, who was a tenor saxophone player, played almost entire career as a member of Duke Ellington's band. And he had the solo spot in this. He ended up playing 27 consecutive blues choruses, a solo that really went probably seven or eight minutes. Hmm. 
And the story is that this was an outdoor concert, Newport Jazz Festival, Newport, Rhode Island, back in those days, in front of a crowd of maybe five, 6,000 people. During that concert, the crowd went nuts. On their feet, dancing. This is a jazz crowd. This is what jazz crowds do. But this, they were grooving this thing and swinging it so hard that the crowd just absolutely went bunkers. And by the time they get into the out chorus and the out vamp where the, where the trumpets are screaming at top octaves, it's, it's one of the most iconic and amazing performances in the history of American music. I mean, it really, it is something that cannot be overhyped. So I gave this record to Prince and Prince absolutely just loved it. So when we're, when we're working on Madhouse 16, there's a song on, on that album, I think it's 12, which was the last song on side one of the album. We're talking vinyl, you know. Mm -hmm. Prince wrote this song and it was 12. And it was obviously his attempt to write something in a Duke Ellington vein. Hmm. Personally, I didn't think the song was very good. I thought it was really corny. My own personal opinion. The problem, though, is that Prince played drums on this song. Once again, this is a, this is a jazz swing feel kind of a triple meter, you know, when you think of jazz, tink, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Prince can't swing. He can't swing. You know, I mean, it's it's like, as a guitar player, he can kind of fake it because he's such, a, such an incredible guitar player. But as a drummer, he does not know how to swing. He cannot physically play a jazz swing groove. His high, his his ride symbol is straight up, what we call straight eights, which is what mm -hmm. funk and R and B is. Mm -hmm. The basic pulse of a swing groove is the hi hat opening and closing, closing on two and four. Throughout this entire song, Prince is hi hat is opening and closing on one and three. That's Lawrence Welk, kind of, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. you know. Wow. Now. <laughs> I will always preface when I make a comment about anything and say, this is my opinion. Mm -hmm. In other words, I am not suggesting that you are supposed to have any opinion other than your own. You're asking me a question. I'm answering it. I have no agenda here. I am not trying to talk you out of digging something you dig because maybe it's something I don't dig. You understand? Yep. And vice versa. There's a lot of music that I made that maybe you don't want to hear. <laughs> Fine. Oh. I got better things to try to talk you into digging something that you don't dig. It's a big world, you know. But I'm but in this case, I'm putting that aside. I brook no opinion. This song is god awful. <laughs> Are you talking about this? Oh, that's exactly what he's talking about. I broke no opinion. That song is god awful. Now <laughs> if if, if Sheila had played drums on it, at least it would have swung. Now, Sheila's yeah. swing is not like a Jimmy Cobb, Elvin Jones jazz, but she uh -huh. can swing. Uh -huh. Girl uh -huh. knows how to, you know. Uh -huh. Prince cannot swing. It's just something he does not possess the physical ability to do. 
and I'm sorry to the whole my one contribution to that album was basically when he's mixing that song and I'm in the booth with him and I'm sitting there and I said, oh, my God, this is like, please, Lord, make it stop. So I said to him, I said, Prince, can I suggest something? And he said, yeah, sure. And I reached over the board and I muted the hi-hat microphone. I just mm -hmm. muted it. Now, you still hear it because it bleeds over into the other microphones that are close to the snare drum microphone. But at least that hi-hat closing on, ah, 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 on one and three is not as loud as it was going to be. And that's all I could do. But mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's, it's just now. But here's the thing. If you flip the album over mm -hmm. and go to the last track, the title track 16. It's a song that Prince and I had put together sometime before we even did those sessions. It's not a great song, but it's OK, you know. But what's cool about it is Prince is playing drums on that. And that's a straight up kind of straight eighth Billy Cobham kind of groove. Prince plays his ass off mm -hmm, on that mm -hmm, song. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. what's cool. The song is not as interesting as just his groove. It gets into the outvamp of that, and Prince is killing it. I mean, just burning his fills. The groove is just killing. That's the difference. That's where he lives. When you watch him walk down the street, that's how he walks. <laughs> you understand? But you flip it over with the swing groove, uh-uh. That's not how he, that's not where his physicality in the music is, you know? And it was a rare occasion where he insisted on trying to do something. I'm sorry, dude. This ain't for you, you know? So... <laughs> <laughs> but boy, I'm saying it's now, you know, you flip the script. There's an awful lot of music that I love that I'm not going to pretend to say, oh, I can do that. I love it. But mm -hmm. I, I'm going to try to do that. That's not what that's not what I do. So anyway, I, I it, it's just it's just a funny thing because you asked me about Duke Ellington. And whenever I think of Duke Ellington, I think about this. Oh, I got I got to go into that <laughs> <laughs> you know, because because I turned him on to that damn Newport. <laughs> he insists on trying to do that. I said, "Oh, do please! Oh, don't do that. Just let let it alone. Leave it alone, please." Can I, can I make one small point? Sure. So, just 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 for the audience to sure. give the context of of, <clears throat> of swing, um, there's an album. There are so many albums, but there's an album. It's by Art Blakey. Mm -hmm. It's called Free for All. Oh yeah. Oh, know it well. Four songs on it. Yeah. The last song, Pensativa. 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 Thank you. Written by Claire Fisher. Mm. I didn't know that, but that's right. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But 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 what what Mr. Lees is talking about with the swing and the swing beat is again it's a it's a slower tempo, but what you hear Art Blakey play on that song in particular is an to me a very very good example of a classic swing beat. And oh, when sure. Blakey comes up under you, he you, you he carries that whole band and he plays straight tempo well, all the way through. And you've got Bla Freddie Blakey, Hubbard soloing yeah. on it. You've got Wayne Short of slow, uh, soloing oh, yeah, on it, Curtis yeah. Fuller. Well, that's that, excellent. The title, the title track, if you listen to title track Free For All, which was Wayne Shorter's song, mm -hmm. if you listen to that, particularly if you put on earphones, during the middle of it, you hear the band 
screaming. While some of the solos on, you hear the castle. Ah, ah. I mean, they are like, wow. Yeah. They are just like, you know, they are so, it is one that it, it, I mean, I probably got, I probably got 40 or 50 yard Blakey albums. I mean, just pretty, yeah. you know, pretty much everything he ever played on Blue Note, pretty much everything. Yeah. That yeah. is probably one of his two or three of my absolute favorite albums that he ever yeah. did. No, that album is just absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Now like, you talk, I, yeah, you talk about swing. Yeah, yeah right. you can, you, you know, all you need to put in the dictionary next to it, put the words Art Blakey. Yeah, you got that. Yeah. Yeah. And the conversational aspect to jazz, because that's what he's talking about. I mean, it, it, that's not the only song where you can hear people talking and, and, and encouraging other musicians. Oh, yeah. yeah. Blow your horn. And, 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 oh, and what's, oh, yeah, what's really happening is that there's this conversation. Absolutely. What they're responding to vocally is what they're hearing musically. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, once again, I mean, I don't, I don't want people to think that I'm 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 putting Prince down for that. Because oh, yeah, like we want to keep you it's, alive it's like in, 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 the, in the broader context of things. It's like whether or not Prince can swing is really irrelevant. And it doesn't because preclude like, him being a genius. Yeah, because, you, you know, <laughs> you don't listen to Little Red Corvette and say, I can't swing. They got nothing mm -hmm. to do with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and like I say, if you really want to hear what he can do as a musician, listen to 16. Just mm -hmm. do me a favor. Pass mm -hmm. on 12. Because <laughs> okay. you know we we all got our moments where oh, I leave that. <laughs> anyway, well, I want to talk about another song. Sorry, Edison's, and um, that wasn't on the CD, but it's actually on. Um, I'm sorry, it's on the CD, no, but sorry, wasn't on, on the CD. Yeah. yeah, it was on the CD, but it wasn't on the album because, like, when we started playing Times Square, I actually pulled out my album. And I was like, where's overnight every night? And I and I'm assuming it's just because, you know, back then time albums time. only. Yeah. Time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So um, let me play just a little for people who may not have heard this. So this was composed by Prince Eric Leeds, Levi Cecil Jr. and Sheila E. According to the liner notes, and we obviously have Eric Leeds on the horns, Alana Bliss on the trumpets, Prince on the piano organ, Levi on the bass, Sheila on the drums. Talk to us about Overnight Every Night. Well, once again, first of all, we're talking about a swing group. That's kind of a quasi swing group. I mean, it's not like, a, you know, it's not like a classic, but it's still more of a closer to a triplet feel. And that's Sheila on drums. So like mm -hmm. that, that little, that, that groove, she can do that. You know, that's where she lives. So that, that's what makes, you know, that, that song work. Um, that was a song that once again, that was from um, the sessions that yielded Madhouse 16. That was a leftover that we didn't use on Madhouse 16. So when it was, uh, so I was working on Times Squared, I went back to some of those things and, and, and said, uh, okay, maybe I can do something with that. So I wrote some extra horn parts, harmonized the melody, and, and then uh, Matt Bliston came in and overdubbed the trumpets when, when I fleshed it out with, with, with the horn arrangement that I put on it. So, Thank you for that. And uh, Michael, do you mind queuing up your dopamine rush? Is that possible? Yeah. yeah. 
So we were going to play um, a little bit of dopamine Russian while um, Michael is setting that up. Um, this is com um, composed by Eric Leeds, at least according to the liner that's, notes. That's, that's, wrong. that's wrong. That's wrong. Is it? And, 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 yeah. And let me, let me look at the let me look at the I mean, I'm, look, I'm looking at my liner notes. Oh, it, that's wrong. I put it in wrong. It says composed by Prince. That, you're right. Yeah, that, that, one, that was Prince's. Yeah, actually, yeah, I, I have um, all the wrong information on this one for some reason. I must have copied it and didn't go it. So let me read, actually. It's um, yeah, Eric Leeds is on tenor and baritone flute. Prince synthesizes guitar, bass, drum, and percussion programming. Matilda May, voice, Claire Fisher, string arrangement. Yeah. So, yeah, I forgot. I must have copied this and forgot to change it. So my apologies. Uh, are you ready with the cue? I'm ready. Are All right. You? Let's do it. Yes. Well, and that's a slightly different. Yeah, that's the part you said you uh, you cut out there, Eric. Yeah, I edited it. that. I just I didn't care for it. Just I, I I the sound of it just it just didn't work for me. Yeah, I I didn't think that the that a vocalization of that nature added anything to to it. Um, I thought the melody was so pretty, just as it was. Um, so, you know, and, and I, you know, I always re reserve the right to change my mind on another day. But I, um, you know, that, that originally was like a 16 or 17 minute um, piece, you know, went through a bunch of different things. Um, I was, I was, I was a little reluctant when, when you know, when I did the edit of it, knowing that doing something that Prince was giving me carte blanche to do on another piece of music or something that he had never finished is one thing. But to take a finished piece of music of his and then edit it and then give it to him, give it to him, said, oh, by the way, here's your 17 minute piece that I've chopped, that I've chopped up and, and it's now about six and a half minutes. Um, so I was like, eh, OK, we'll see, you know, see what see what happens with this. Um, Fortunately, he, he actually, I, I was kind of surprised, but he said, you know something? Works a lot better this way. Keep it. Wow. All right. So, I, you know, dodged that bullet. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was, when, when I listened to that, I, I, I think of that, that of, of everything about that, the, the, the basic groove, the drum machine, particularly the, the drum machine pattern that came up with, not only the melody, but the textures of, of the synthesizers that he would use to mm -hmm. me, a track like that is quintessential Prince. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I, I don't think you're going to really, you know, listen to that. If you're, if you're familiar with Prince's music, you listen to that as though that's Prince. Right. Um, was really, we're really kind of hoping that that was going to really get some radio attention for the album. Cause I mean, you'd like mm -hmm. to have a radio friendly song. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. When the album came out, the album came out in 1991. Um, mm -hmm. It was the absolute peak 
of what's known as the smooth jazz era when mm. Kenny G and uh, God, I can't remember some of the other players that, you know, that were really Dave Cox, Dave Cos, Dave, Dave Cos, yeah. um, Gerald Albright was one, I think um, some others that selling millions and millions of records. Um, we were kind of hoping that maybe this song, we, you know, we, we did a single edit. We did like a three, three, three and a half minute, you know, radio edit for the song also. Um, and the feedback that we, that, that we got from radio programmers and everything was, Oh, that drum machine is weird. Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm thinking, Oh, really? I said, Oh, well then I can't help you on that. You know, mm-hmm. that's what it is, you know? And, and you realize that so much of that music was so formulate, you know, so formula at that point and that anything that anyone would think is out of the ordinary. And it's just, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very imaginative use of, of the drum patterns. Really cool. But it's like, it grooves. That's mm-hmm. the important thing. Mm-hmm. Does it feel mm-hmm. good? Feel great. So, like, don't tell me, oh, it's weird. And once I said, oh, I said, oh, we got, we got problems now. You know, because <laughs> if they're listening to that, and they're mm-hmm. going to just, like, say, oh, this, this, this is weird. And I said, well, you, you know, pretty much the rest of the album isn't going to get a lot of airplay on these stations. So, I find that odd, because these are some of the same stations that actually played six. Not four or five years earlier. Yeah. But the six, same stations. Yeah. But six was. Yeah. Like the live six drumming. Was, six, six, yeah. Six was live drumming. It was more more of an R&B groove. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that the the radio, I, I don't know. You, you know, you can yeah, always yeah, say yeah. the difference in five years. You know, right, we were thinking right. that maybe Dopamine Rush would work on Quiet Storm, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. No. Mm-hmm. It. It. it Got no traction at all. Just go go figure. And it could have been one of those things that if that same song had been released two or three years early or two or three years later, who knows? They say timing is everything. Whatever it was, we could get no traction from it at all. I just wonder, and and I mean, it's like I'm living on this soapbox, but it's like, was there backlash by radio programmers of that format to say that, oh, well, wait a minute, Prince really isn't jazz, which is dumb and amazingly ironic because neither is Kenny G. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. What what yeah. I do know is that back in those days, radio programmers were would play bits and pieces of music for a sample audience, mm-hmm. and that they would take mm-hmm. their make their decisions based on that. And literally, from what I understood, they might play no more than like fifteen or thirty seconds of a song to get the immediate reaction from what they thought was their identifying mm-hmm. as their core audience mm-hmm. and whatever it was they they you know they just weren't we we got no positive you know very little positive feedback in mm. fact the, the song on that album that actually got more consistent radio play than anything else um was a song called night out <laughs> that got some radio play you know um it's got a little you know funny little you know, it's a very that's my favorite little melody, album. you know, um, yeah, but but we we really you know we really just thought that and because dopamine rush was so identifiably Prince, you know <laughs> more one, so yeah. than anything else, just the <clears> character <throat> of the song that we were hoping that that would gain some traction. Um, now to 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 your point about the more traditional jazz market having that that obstinate 
refusal to want to accept somebody like Prince as a legitimate jazz artist, mm -hmm. which is why Prince did not want his name associated with Madhouse. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Now, the interesting thing is, is that very little of the jazz press, like, for example, Downbeat Magazine, which was still, you know, the mm -hmm. main jazz publication, mm -hmm. never reviewed either of the Madhouse albums. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. was no mention of mm -hmm. it, you know, other than maybe a blurb that, you know, Paisley Park Prince has some new project called Mad. That was the extent of it. Um, when Times Squared came out, um, Downbeat did a, a, a one column profile on me. Mm, you know, mm, on one page, mm. not a full story, just a you know, little one column profile. When, when, but they did not review Times Square. They did review things left unsaid. And I was very, very gratified. They, they gave it a really gave it a four star review, which I was mm, very, very yeah. happy with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a question in the chat um, re regarding um, Dopamine Rush. Did Prince sing any more besides those two minutes on the song or was it just an intro? Because we only have like two minutes of. I, I, th I think that I think that was it. I, I think that was 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 pretty much it. There might have been. Um, I don't. I, I I think that was it. I might be wrong. You know, there might okay. have been something in one of the other parts that he did, but I I don't recall. Yeah. All right. Okay, so we're gonna shift gears a little bit, and um, I want to we. So we're reading Dwayne's book, and um, this year we're we're in the year of 1983, and Prince has been rehearsing Body Heat with the Revolution. And oh, God, my yeah. question to you was, of all James Brown's songs, why Body Heat? And the reason why I say Body Heat is that he rehearsed it a lot, and whenever he did rehearse it, it was for very long hours. And then it seems like I he... have, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I have played that groove with him at 15, 20 minutes. And I have to be absolutely honest. Anytime we would hit that groove 15, after 20 minutes, I'm saying, that's 20 minutes of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what it was about. And here's the thing. He would groove on what was actually the bridge of the song. And there was a little clavinet line on the bridge of, the, yeah. of, of, of James's original, that bang, and that's what he wanted me to play. So literally for 15 minutes, I'm just and it's like, okay, thank you very much. You know, I really don't know what it was about that particular groove that he fell in love with. Body okay. Heat as a song is 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 unimportant to James Brown song as anything else he could you know come up with in this catalog. It was just, you know, it was yeah. a nothing of a song. But it seems in, like in my in my in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like Prince was really obsessed with it because he played it so I much. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my my counterpoint to that, it, it seems like he switched. You know, when once the with the Sonic Times Love Sexy rehearsals, he sort of expanded the JP J, um, JB rehearsal repertoire. And um, there's like a Mother Popcorn uh, yeah. rehearsal, and Cold Sweat obviously was performed a lot with Bonnie Boyer, and Bonnie's birthday was this past year, uh, past week. So if you have any, oh wow, yeah. 
Bonnie stories. And also, um, can you talk a little bit about um, why maybe he didn't drill the Sign of Times Love Sexy band on Body Heat and chose others? Maybe Prince himself got tired of Body Heat or? Well, I, 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 sus I suspect he did. You know, it was just one of those things he was into. It was, it was you know, I, don't, I really don't think it was anything more than just a convenient groove that he could hit on a sound check in order for just to, for him to play on for a while. I, I think it was just, you know, we, we could hit a bunch of just generic R&B funk grooves, you know, at any time. And Body Heat just happened to be one of them. And it was, I, I think, maybe just convenient more than anything else. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I never had a discussion with him about it. Otherwise, it, it, you know, it was just something that during that time, there were a lot of sound checks. And in the, in the midst of a sound check, he would just hit that groove. And I said, OK, here we go. I really don't, I really, you know, don't, don't, don't know if it had any significance to him beyond that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm sure all of you had like Pavlovian responses whenever he said body. Uh, a lot of that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <Body>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So continuing, we've been talking a lot about James Brown and um, actually I think last week or maybe the, the week before we talked about the Star Time box set, which I got in real time like back, I think it was in 91 when it was released mm -hmm. or something yeah. like that. Um, and in the liner notes, um, it actually said, um, Alan said that, you know, he was going to write a forthcoming book about um, like a discography or chronology of James Brown. And I was lamenting um, that, you know, um, Alan didn't write that book. He, I know he wrote another book, but not the chronology, kind of like the studio sessions, because I did not realize until this very week, because I've been doing some research, that there's this whole James Brown, the single series, which Alan Leeds does all the liner notes for, is like 11 mm -hmm. um, volumes, mm -hmm. and that's, you find the chronology in that. But the yep. reason why I'm talking about it with you is that, that in the credits, um, Alan thanks you. And, and on some of the albums, he always puts something in between your name. So like on volume four, he says Eric leads. And then on volume seven, it's like Eric counterpoint leads. So I'm sure there's like an inside joke. Um, that, like, can you like fill us in on what's going on here with the, the liner notes and thank you to you? Some of it's just like inside inside jokes and references to to James Brown himself, and a lot of it is just a comment that I might have made about a particular song that he might have asked me about. Um, mm -hmm. And beyond that, I I really don't really remember too much, you know, too much too much about this, you know, the specific the specific ones. Um, but yeah, it, it, that 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 is an amazing series of cds when you consider the, 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 the detail um that they went into because they're they, they they literally would include alternate versions and alternate releases and give and alan you know explained all of the, the different details about why a particular song might have been released in this form and it might have been pulled from the market and then a subsequent version of the song might have been released in place of that or whatever it goes into the detail on all of that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it re really is, you know. I, I must say that Al Alan's book is called There Was a Time, um, if you can find that book. And that's that's basically is his book about his years with James Brown, particularly. And Alan is involved now uh, as a producer for uh, a documentary series that is going to be um, 
for A&E uh, cable television that will hmm. probably be aired next year sometime. I think it's going to be, I think it's a four episode, four hmm. consecutive night episodes that, that okay. uh, about, about James that yeah. they're in, in uh, production now. And Alan, Alan is, is one of the awesome. producers on that. Yeah, so that's something to look forward to. Very it's, much so. Because we've been it's, talking it's, about it's, Mr. Dynamite. We have, been talking about, we have been talking about Mr. Dynamite, the documentary that Alan yeah. was involved with and did like an audio commentary with Questlove and Christian McBride. The, and that, that was, a, I think that was as fabulous a documentary on art as I've ever seen. I thought that was just absolutely done, done brilliantly. The, the editing particularly of, of using the musical examples that were, were spoken about, particularly by Christian, my brother and others. And, and just all of a sudden, you know, they just cut right into like a live performance mm -hmm. of the song to really just, it was absolutely, I think, just wonderfully, wonderfully done. Um, you know, it, it, it is, the opportunity that I had to know James Brown, like I did and for the years that I did is, is really just one of the most, um, it's something that's difficult for me to even still get my arms around. You know the experiences that I had with him because of my brother and because of mm -hmm. Alan's mm -hmm. relationship with him. And if you knew somebody, you know, any anybody that knew Prince, particularly anybody that worked with Prince, if they said Prince is the most amazing or the most interesting or the most fascinating person that I could ever imagine knowing, I couldn't argue with that. The only thing is that I knew James Brown too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And partly because of my age <coughs> and, and what a relationship meant, you know, when I was growing up. If there's any one person that I could honestly say to me, because of the nature of our relationship and what his music and everything meant to me and the history of, of them as individuals and what they meant just to everything. It might be interesting to say, you know, that there was somebody even more fascinating and incredible in so many regards to me than Prince was, and that was James Brown. I cannot imagine a human being more amazing in so many respects than James Brown. And for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, some of which are just personal to me, but others, you know, that would resonate to people that, that you know, would have never had the opportunity to mm -hmm. know him. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do just with the particular, you know, the circumstances of James Brown, the person that he was, and the time and the circumstances in which he lived and grew up. Um, for example, it's not for me, not just as a human being, but for obviously as, as, as a white person to try to tell anybody who is black or of color or any you know, person that is still considered in this country to be the other. It's not for me to define for you mm. what your life is or what, for example, the experience of what it means to be a black human being in this country or anywhere else. It's not for me to, you know, to try to describe that or to say that or make a contest out of the realities of your existence on a day-to-day -day basis versus somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I think you can, because whatever indignities that somebody like Prince growing up in the 1960s 
as a young black kid in the city of Minneapolis, it's not for me to talk about, you know, what that means or what those experiences are in comparison to anybody else. Mm -hmm. But I think anybody can understand that perhaps Prince's worst day mm -hmm. might have been better than James Brown's best day. Mm. Growing up in Jim Crow South in the 1930s and 40s mm -hmm. with a seventh grade education, what opportunities does a person like that have with all of that reality without this amazing talent and the absolute will that James yeah. Brown had to survive? There was James Brown never had the luxury. I, I used to get so aggravated, even in the 60s, when writers of music, whether it was jazz or pop music or whatever, would talk about the music, for example, of the Beatles, which I happen to love a lot of that stuff and understand the absolute incredible artistry of particularly John Lennon and Paul McCartney. If you look mm -hmm. at, at their work and the music that they were creating particularly stuff like, you know, Day in the Life, the Sgt. Pepper's, Abbey Road, um, Strawberry Fields Forever. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and everyone that was looking at what was pop music was now considered to be art. Fine. Mm -hmm. I get mm -hmm. it. I agree mm -hmm. with that. But those same people at the same mm -hmm. time would refuse to think of or write about James Brown in the same context. He was just this, oh, this fabulous entertainer. Right. If you want to hear the great, have the greatest entertainment light of your life, go see James Brown. But it was never from the context of understanding that this was art mm -hmm. on a mm -hmm. level that was was at the highest absolute. And you know who understood that? Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. You know, so so screw everybody else. Mm -hmm. They understand it. Musicians of that era understood. But I used to get so aggravated about that. But. James Brown never had the luxury of even sitting back and even considering his own music art because he was out there working for a living. Mm -hmm. And that was his attitude. I go to work. This is what I do. This is my job. You know, and the fact that it was all of this is almost like coincidental mm. to what his basic attitude was, because even in the 1960s, where he literally was the most famous and well-known face of a black American other than Muhammad Ali, you know? And what he meant so much to the community, the black American community that, at that time, he realized that even at the top of his, you know, he was the biggest thing out there, controlled his own business like nobody did. It was right. unprecedented the way he controlled that. Barry Gordy didn't even control Motown like James Brown controlled right. his own, you know. Um, but inside him, every night he's going out on stage to give everything he can because still there is that thought inside, this could all disappear so quickly. Hmm. And what do I have left as somebody coming out with a seventh grade education? What else is there for me to do that I can succeed at and control like I do this? And it's basically like every night he's got to go out there because I have to do this. 
Because if I don't succeed at this, this could all go away. And what am I left with? You know? And, 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 and that was his whole, that was his attitude. He said, and, and he used to call me, you know, he used to call me Rick. I mean, that's when I was Rick. He said, Rick, it's time for me to go to work. Mm-hmm. I said, Mr. Brown, I understand. You know? Now, he was a superstar, you know, and took advantage of everything that that brought. But when you scratch the surface, this was a guy that understood, you know, the whole context. Prince, with all the obstacles that could be put in front of any young kid aspiring to be what he was, and all of that, Prince never really looked at it from the standpoint of, this is my job. He once got very aggravated at me when I referred to what I did with him as my job. Mm. I work for you. This is what my this is what I do for a living. It's my job to come in and play your music and be a part of your bit. And Prince would you think this is just a job? And I said, Well, Prince, I don't mean that in a critical sense. I like my job. You know, I like what I'm doing. But this is what I do for a living. And at the end of the day, I go home. And tomorrow I come back to work. Prince's whole thing was like, he really looked at the whole thing as creating Oz. He was the Wizard of Oz. And he really liked the idea of of creating this alternate reality. Mm -hmm. Everybody should want to be a part of to the same degree that he looked at it. And some did. And some and, and many of us were very grateful. I'm glad that I can come to work and be a part of this. Being on the road and traveling Europe with that entourage was big fun. You know, who wouldn't love being a part of all that? And knowing that every night you're part of an ensemble that is going out and producing and realizing music at absolutely the top level of of quality and ability because of the artistry and everything that is inherent in this guy and his music. But at the end of the day, my whole thing was, it's still my gig. It's a gig. I dig it. But, you know, it's like Prince had that luxury to kind of be able to, in his time, you know, look at it from, and I just, I just look back and said, boy, that, that is a fundamental difference. And once again, it's, a, it's about time. You know, it's about the particular circumstances. Um, Prince was obviously every bit as, as sensitive as he would be to every aspect of what it meant still to be a black person in America. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But a lot of it is just, you know, individuals and how they look at the circumstances they are. James Brown, another another significant difference between the two, James Brown was inherently a people person. He loved mm-hmm. engaging and being mm-hmm. surrounded by people of all walks of life. Mm-hmm. This was a guy that could sit and have a conversation with people like Senator Strom Thurmond or Jesse Holmes. Mm-hmm. You know, guys that were the embodiment of everything that a James Brown was the antithesis to. Mm-hmm. James understood that. James understood that to these guys, you want to look at my and who I am and black people and people of color as the other. I get, you know, sacred, the whole, that whole old style thing. James Brown would sit and ask and say, you know, in a con- might be in a room, find himself and said, Mr. Thurman, how's your family? Mm-hmm. And they might talk about that. And Mr. Thurman, excuse my trying to, you know, 
Mr. Brown, how's your family? Okay. You know, because James Brown was not going to give it up because mm -hmm. he said, I will relate to you as a human being, because in my manner of relating to you on that basis, you will not have the opportunity to relate to me at this point in time in any other manner than that. Now, once this is over and you go out in the room and you can talk about black people in any disparaging way, I can't control that. But right now you are with me and we are talking to each other as human beings. And James loved those kinds of encounters. And heaven help anybody that would try, mm -hmm. to, you know, because James Brown was not afraid of anybody or anything. And the manner in which he could relate to all different kinds, he loved the ability to go into a room and suck the air out of it in a manner that says, I am going to talk to you and we are going to talk and we are converse. What used to frustrate James at times was the fact that he realized that with his lack of a formal education, he sometimes did not have the vocabulary to articulate so much of what he knew. Mm. And that used to frustrate him at times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, he was very, very insecure and very, you know, very, uh, you know, no one accused James Brown of false modesty in any situation. But you could scratch between the surface and occasionally he would say to my brother, someone that said, I wish I could, I wish I could, un, I wish I could articulate this in a manner that could really make the point. And he was always interested in having some people around him that could do that for him. You know, I said, let me ask this person to try to explain what I know and what I'm trying to say, which was a very interesting, you know, part of, of, of him. Um, he was so smart. And he was smart enough to know what he didn't know. And, mm -hmm. realize, oh boy. Mm -hmm. and when, when I think of James Brown more than anything else, I think of, okay, imagine this is a guy that's growing up and this has the opportunity and, and the poverty that he lived in. I mean, we're talking about, you know, him probably living in his first maybe 10 or 11 years of his life, probably in, in, in a house that, or, or, or in a, a a domicile that didn't have indoor plumbing. He lived with his aunt. He lived in a whorehouse. His aunt was ran a whorehouse. Mm -hmm. You know, his father, you know, so you imagine with everything that a guy like this has, if this is a guy that had had an opportunity to have a full education and the options and abilities and opportunities to do anything else he might have wanted to have done with his life. This guy would have, could, you know, could have been anything, anything he wanted. But for the realities of what, and he said, he said, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to be a boxer, he used to box. You know, he wanted to be a, a baseball player for a minute because those were opportunities that young black people could have mm -hmm. that at least could earn you a living, you know, beyond just what, picking cotton, cotton or being a, you know, being an itinerant farmer. You know, that, that's what the reality was. And when you look at what he accomplished through the will and the determination that he had, um, all of that goes in, into just, and then there was the music. You know? <laughs> right. There, the, the, the experiences about when he was on the road, he would always carry a small portable stereo with him, you know, a little stereo record player. And he'd have it in his dressing room. 
because he always had test pressings of his newest recordings. Because, you know, he was, you know, back then it was singles. It was all next 45, right. next single. And if I catch him at a good time when he'd had some new shit, you know, and I remember the one particular time, I think it was, it was in Pittsburgh and it was 1968, I think late 1968, somewhere around there. And I was in this dressing room. And at that point it was, it was him, his wardrobe mistress, whose name was Gertrude Saunders, who was always with him. And I just happened to be in with the two of them at this point. And he said, Rick, and I said, and I saw the stereo. I said, Mr. Brown, you got something new? And they said, Rick, you know I do. So he put on some, like, just, studio, you know, he loved blues. He loved just singing blues. That's really all he really loved more than anything else, just singing blues. Hmm. So he put on some blues stuff that he would record, just throwaway stuff that might come on on an album, just filler. And I'd listen to it, and I said, oh, that's good. You know, I dig that. Bands happen and everything. And then he said, and then he'd laugh. He said, ah, Rick, I got you. You know, I got you. So he put it on. And he put on this thing, and all of a sudden, it's give it up or turn it loose. You know, this wasn't going to be released for another two or three weeks. He had just recorded like a few days before. And I'm sitting there and I said, Oh my God, I'm sitting in there with James Brown and he's playing me his next record. And when when you're 14 or 15 years old and you're in that situation, it's like, wow. And I, I, I still look back at that, you know, and, and just try to, try, to, try to remember what it was to be like that. I was at a show, one of the package shows in 1966, when, when, I was, when my family was still living in Richmond, Virginia. And this was one of these package shows on the same show with Stevie Wonder, Joe Tex, Solomon Burke, the Marvelettes, um, a bunch of other acts. My brother, who was a radio DJ at the time in Richmond, Virginia, already knew James Brown. He knew Joe Tex. He knew all of these guys. So I'm backstage at the show, and I get to be, and Joe Tex was a really, really nice guy. And he, I had gotten to know him a little bit, and he said, Rick, anytime you want to, you know, if you're out front digging, if you want to come back, hang backstage, just come into my dressing room and hang, hang with me in the dressing room. It's, it's cool. So I said, wow, I'm like 14 years old. So I'm sitting in Joe Tex's dressing room, and all of a sudden I look up and Stevie Wonder walks in. And asks Joe Tex, he says, um, one of my suits ripped. Can I borrow a suit from you? Because I got to go on. I go on in like 10 minutes. So Joe Tex says, yeah, whatever you want. You know, grab a suit and whatever. Solomon Burke is sitting on the floor of the dressing room, and they're kicking it. And I'm a little kid, 14-year-old kid in the corner sitting in a chair, and I'm listening to Joe Tex, Solomon Burke, and Stevie Wonder just chilling, just talking about, you know, talking about what, what they're doing on the road. They mm-hmm. were talking about different musicians and their bands and just stuff. And I'm sitting there, and I said, holy cow. That's the perspective that I had the opportunity to grow up in. So it's kind of like by the time I met Prince years <laughs> later, it was like, been there, done that. Yeah, it's like a Tuesday to you. and with james brown there's such a there's such a strong ownership component uh to his music but i mean obviously to his his livelihood i mean king records that was his record company he he, well he he didn't print his own records right well he did yeah he didn't own the company but i mean basically at that time he he had a deal with king 
that was certainly okay. much more lucrative than, you know, until he, you know, until he went for Polydor Records in 1971, I think. But yeah, I mean, he he basically um, had carte blanche to basically dis. He basically made his music and said to King Records, "This is my new one. This is what you put out." Yeah. What I mean, did he get like a higher percentage of the royalties with that relationship than he would? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A absolutely. Um, he even. <laughs> Back back in those days, when shall, shall we say the business aspect of that? A lot was somewhat a little off the books now and then. Um, James had some other side deals that were worked into his contract that were not the kind of deals that you would normally have with another label either. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he 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 knew he knew how to work it. He knew how to work all angles of it. Um, he was. And he was involved with every aspect of his business. Every night on the road, when the show was over, the road manager or whoever was responsible in his organization for that night's gig, sometimes it was my brother, would have to come into the dressing room afterwards and go over the one sheet. And basically, the, you know, this is what we did. Here's, here's what we spent for this gig. Here's the dollars and cents. And James Brown had a photographic memory. My brother might be responsible for a gig in Pittsburgh. And, you know, back in those days, it was very, very simple. Ticket sales at most were four or five bucks. That was the highest ticket price. Mm -hmm. James Brown for years then had a deal that a child under 12 years old, when coming to the concert with, a full, with, a, with a, 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 an adult who was paying the full price, the kid could get in for 99 cents. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. Advertisement and the promotion was very simple. You did radio advertisement, you did some posters, and that was pretty much it. So my brother might be responsible exactly, you know, for example, for this night's performance in Pittsburgh. So he will come and sit and say, Mr. Brown, this is what we took in at the box office. And those days it was almost cash and carry. I mean, mm -hmm. credit cards, you know, mm -hmm. even back mm -hmm. in the late 60s, very mm -hmm. few people had credit cards. You, you know, unfortunately, to make this it, not too many black people had credit cards. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even mm -hmm. then, not too many white people had, you know, so you understand yeah. what mm -hmm. it was cash and carry. So basically, they're bringing a, they're bringing a, a duffel bag of cash into James Brown's dressing room. And, and everybody's got guns. <laughs> James, James used to have a gun. Mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. James always had a pistol in his mm -hmm. briefcase, in his coat. Never, ever saw it in his hand. Never. But there was always this thing, supposedly, that there was an overcoat that James always had that had a pistol in it. Whether it was loaded, I don't right. even know. You know. But anyway, um, so Alan would basically have to say, and Mr. Brown said, Mr. Leeds, you know, what, what are these expenses? And he said, well, this is what it costs for, for the radio uh, advertisements. And he said, Mr. Leeds, when we were here in Pittsburgh nine months ago, it was a lower rate. Why is that? Why are we paying more? And Alan would have to say, well, the rates went up. Nothing I can do about that. But James Brown was going to, he'd, he'd look at that and he said, how do you remember that? You've mm -hmm. done 50 gigs between the last time you were in Pittsburgh. And he said, James Brown was on everything. Hmm. You know, didn't trust anybody. Yeah. But, you know, was on everything. And it was like, you know, I, I used to ask Alan, I said, 
well, what if a date didn't sell that? What if, what, you know, what if you're playing a 10,000 seat arena and you only got 3,000 people in it? You know, would there be hell to pay? And he said, sometimes there would, but he said, sometimes James would just chalk it up and said, hey, you know, wasn't our time. Like, you know, we were only here maybe four or five months before. So maybe we realized it would be sold out this time. But he said, James was always much more careful when it was a big payday because he basically felt that if anyone in my organization might want to try to skim something from themselves, they're going to do it on the big paydays, not on the little ones, which makes perfect common sense. Yeah. Because if you're going to steal, you steal where the money is. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't nickel and dime trying to skim something if they're only like $5,000 to play with. But if you got a night where you've grossed $75,000 and maybe somebody, one of the outside promoters is saying, maybe I can, you know, skim a few bucks off the top of this one. That's when James's eye was like on every nickel and dime. Mm. Absolutely yeah. fascinating to, to, you know, yeah. So thank you so much for all this James Brown education. We're going to talk a little bit about um, some jazz record, a couple yeah, I'll give you. I think. I think you. I think. I think at this point you might you might get a little bit tired of hearing from me. So, so yeah. <laughs> little, you know, I you, will, you tell me now when when it's you know, when it's time. Yes, to talk. yes, yes. Uh, We're gonna talk about one that I want to talk about. It's one of my favorite um, favorites. I play it all the time. I have it here. Um, Search for the New Land, and the reason why by Lee Morgan, and the reason why I wanted bad. to talk, talk to you about it. I'm I'm wondering, do you have it in your own collection? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Um, I, I, uh, got a lot of records back there, sir. Yeah. He's up there. He's up there. Collection. That one's up there. Yeah. Um, so Wayne Shorter's on here, and I know that you love Wayne Shorter. So I, Absolutely. Wanted, um, yeah. so I wanted you to just talk about, like, um, if you listen to Search for the New Land a lot, what did you think about Wayne Shorter's performance on it? And just a little bit about um, um you know i i love that album it's been a while since i've listened to it so you're giving me a really good reason later today and later tonight pulled out to listen to it. <laughs> um i i just I, I just know it's a great album you know but um wayne, wayne was um well here another another personal story for me in, in 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 pittsburgh my first little jazz band that i had in pittsburgh um in 1972 it was december 1972 my band was the opening act for a concert of Weather Report and Rasan Roland Kirk and his band. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm like going to the gig that, that afternoon for Soundcheck and I'm thinking, these people are paying their money. They're going to hear three saxophone players. They can hear Wayne Shorter. They hear Rasan Roland Kirk and they hear me. And I said, oh shit. I almost <laughs> turned around and went home. You know, I'm, I'm 20. I'm barely, tw you know, 20 years old. Um, we did our little set. And after I set me and, me and the guys in, in, in the band were in our little dressing room and Joe Zavano and Wayne Shorter come back and peek in our dressing room. And these like are two of my absolute biggest heroes in all of music. And they look in and they and they kind of said, you, you, you were the fellas that were, were the first band to play before us. And I, and I said, yeah, he said, and Wayne Shorter and Joe Zavano looked at not me, but all of us and said, y'all, y'all cats keep at it. You, you, you got it. You got a hell of a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's one that's one of those those moments for me that I'll never forget, you know, to, to have that kind of vote of confidence from, from your heroes like that. Um, Wayne, you, you know, obviously, beside just his his saxophone playing, uh, this is the most beautiful drop drop dead, beautiful sound. I think anybody has ever produced on a soprano saxophone, particularly. Um, 
Branford Marcellus might be the other guy who I love as much on soprano. Um, his compositions, you know, the, the writing he did, not only for his own albums, the stuff he wrote for Art, you know, when he was with Art Blakey, all the stuff that he wrote with, with when he was with Miles. And of course, mm -hmm. some of the, the, the most amazing stuff in the world that he wrote when, you know, when he was with Weather Report. Um, you know, when, when I talk about probably the four or five or maybe, you know, he, he's definitely in my top 10, if not top five musicians, mm, you know, mm -hmm. beyond just his, you know, just, mm -hmm. just because of what he contributed to the vocabulary and the concept of so much of his writing was so unique and, and, and brought such a different way of, of, of just thinking about music, you know? So when you really get into Wayne Short and really understand, you come out the other side and you say, well, like, it's a, it's a, it, you just end up thinking about music differently. Mm. And, and, you know, the rare individuals like that, Miles, of course, the Duke Ellington before that, Coltrane, uh, for me, in, in, in uh, uh, like I said, Eddie Palmieri. Mm -hmm. And in the context of, the, of, of pop music, absolutely Prince. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, try, 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 try to think of the trajectory and the evolution of, of pop music without Prince. Mm -hmm. You know? I, 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 you know, Prince never sold as many, I mean, sold a lot of records. He never sold as many records as, as some of the other artists mm -hmm. of his era. Certainly not as many as Michael Jackson or probably even as Madonna. Right. But I don't think Michael Jackson has the influence on the actual music and the, and the way music evolved and the way so many musicians would respond to Prince's music. There were musicians from all different kinds of genres mm -hmm. that in that particular period in the, you know, the mid 80s that would that would wait for Prince's next album in order to try to understand what they were maybe able to do next. Mm -hmm. You know? And that's what really, you know, mm -hmm. like a James Brown before that, Sly Stone to a certain extent, I, I also certainly mm -hmm. George Clinton and that and Stevie Wonder. But in jazz, um, you know, that that that's that's what Charlie Mingus said about Charlie Parker when he heard that Charlie Parker died when he died in 1955. Um, he said, all the jazz musicians now are not going to know what to do next. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and. Those are the artists, you know, when you find a handful of artists that can have that that influence and that significance to what everybody's listening to. And, and Wayne Shorter was was in, in jazz on, on, on that level. Just absolutely, just beyond brilliant. So I just have a, a few more. We're going to wrap it up. Just a few more rapid fire questions. Um, I know that you've talked about having dinner with Miles and Prince and Sheila. Yeah. But when you talk about it, you didn't talk about the interaction that Miles had with John L. Nelson. Can you talk a little bit about that dinner and specifically Miles and John L.? What was their rapport like? There really, really wasn't too too much. John John was not a talkative person. He was a, he was a very quiet person, mm -hmm. and I don't really remember that there was you know too much um, interaction, you know, specifically between them. I I. It, it, as, as you can gather from from the time you've been spending with me, I'm not shy about running my mouth. <laughs> I was so so grateful to Prince for asking me to join them for that for that dinner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I also have a feeling that Prince did have an ulterior motive. <laughs> that I think he was interested in knowing that I was going to take advantage of the situation. Like mm -hmm. I said, mm -hmm. it ain't every night that I'm going to be able to have dinner with Miles. So I 
I was not apologetic about getting the conversation rolling. It was like, all right, Miles, what I need to know is this, you know, <laughs> it was like, and as soon as Miles got off on the tangent, Miles wouldn't shut up. It was great. You could just sit back and let him roll. And I think that's what Prince wanted me for then. That's fine. That's perfect. I'm glad to be there, if anything, for that. Um, so if, you know, so if there was anyone interrupting or trying to get Prince, get Miles to talk, it was me. So mm -hmm. the problem was, is that if, if John was really trying to get anything, he was probably thinking, if only this guy leads would shut the hell up, maybe I could get, you know. <laughs> so I must say that maybe, you know. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. Now, I absolutely love, I call it the LP music uh, record that you did with, I call him St. Paul, um, yep. Paul Peterson. And I want to know, when is the next album coming out? I would love to have another LP music album. We, we want to do one. And um, it's one of those things, Paul is, is very busy. You know, mm -hmm. Paul has a lot on his plate. Good for him. You know, I mean, he's, he's involved in a lot of different things. We want to do another one. And it's one of those things that we will probably do in stages. It's a matter of like, can I grab Paul for, you know, an afternoon, a couple of days and run in the studio and do something. And we'll try to ask something, you know, out. So we, we, we do plan to do one. The basic thing is, is that, you know, we're doing this all on our own nickel, pretty much, um, which is always another factor, unfortunately. So, um, you know, we, we, we did the LP No Words uh, through a crowdfund. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. may try to we may try to actually do another crowdfund if we you know we can. Yeah, uh, I participated would, in that. Yeah. I, I I mean I, I know that I would love to contribute. I'm sure others would because it's really a phenomenal record. And talking I'm, I'm 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 so happy with that. You know, when I was speaking about when things left unsaid, you know, the opportunity to work with here here's a fascinating thing, you know. I know Paul since 1984, and when we were, you know, briefly together in the family, everyone knows the story about that. After the family, you know, when he he left and went on his own, I didn't see Paul probably for you know 10 years after that. You know, I was working with Prince; he's doing his own thing. Mm -hmm. We we you know we start to get together, and we you know we did some things together in the late 90s, and then when we, when we decided to put the family back together and record, you know, call it F Deluxe and the albums that we did, particularly Gaslight, the live album that we did and everything. We were doing some F Deluxe gigs again. But there was a point in time that I started to realize and really have the option, you know, opportunity to be working with Paul on, on, on that stuff and realize that, boy, this guy is so much more of a musician than I would have just, you know, thought about just from being, have, from him being like a 20-year-old guy who's singing the stuff in the family and knowing the background that he had because the whole Peterson family, everybody in the family are musicians, mm -hmm. wonderful musicians. So we're, we're, we're kicking up. Actually, we went to see a, a gig one night. Paul and I were hanging and, and it was a, it was, it was a Christian McBride gig and, and it was, it was a concert, Christian McBride and a band of his, but it wasn't a straight up jazz band. He was doing kind of a quasi, um, light hip-hop kind of thing. He had Patrice Russian with him on the gig, and he had a DJ. So it was kind of an extent groove gig, which Christian is brilliant at, I mean, besides his jazz shit. Um, and Maceo and his band was on, Maceo Barker and his band was on the gig. So anyway, we're, we're digging, we're, di we're listening to Christian, and Paul says to me, he said, oh, we, should try, we, should, we, should, we should do something like that. And I said, yeah, why not? 
So we started to get together and and put this thing together. And we had um, Stokely Williams was was um, you, you know playing drums with us on on a bunch of the stuff um, that we were doing. We were doing some gigs, and it was basically just finding some grooves and just jamming on them. But then we started to get a little more ambitious to start actually writing some music. Hmm. So when we started, I said, "Well, let's let's try to do a record, and let's you know." So we did the organized the crowdfunds, and now I'm I'm working with Paul. God, I got to tell you, Paul Peterson is maybe one of the most brilliant and wonderful musicians I have ever worked with. Hmm. He has an understanding of the music that we play with very little un with very little knowledge about the source. So I'm talking about all of these references from all of these musicians in this music that I grew up listening to and everything. And he doesn't have a clue to hardly any of, you know, I could mention like, you know, he, he'll pick up a guitar and he'll start to do some great shit. Paul can play some really nice guitar. And I said, man, that reminds me of some stuff like John Abercrombie. Would be. You know, John Abercrombie was a very famous guitar player passed away several years ago. But in the 70s and 80s, anybody in jazz knew who J John Abercrombie was a guitar player. Paul had never heard of him. You know, I said, John, who, you know, so Paul is coming up with all of this great music. And once again, it's the thing. I might have an idea for a piece of music, a song that's half written. I'll bring it into Paul and he'll instinctively do something amazing with it. And it's something that I'll sit back and say, wow, that's exactly what I would have done, except I didn't, hmm. you know, and it's like I can start a sentence and all of a sudden Paul is finishing the thought and vice versa. And once again, it's that wonderful opportunity where I have an idea, but I know what I would do if I were to finish it. So what's the fun in that? Because I know ahead of time what I'm going to do with it. And like, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful for people to say how much they enjoy what I play and what I do. But you got to understand something. I hear what I do every day. So it ain't, you know, it's like, oh, well, cool, but like, uh, it's just what I do. And if anyone's going to get bored with it, it's going to be me because I have to hear everything I think of or play. And after a while, it's just like, well, okay, I'm good and I can do that. But I want, you know, it's like you need a conversation. You need to have a dialogue with somebody. You want to throw a thought out there and have somebody come back at you with a reaction that you wouldn't have and wouldn't think of. Like, this is a cool point, but this is what I think about that. And then you have to react to that and then move on. And when you can find a relationship with a musician like that, it's worth its weight in gold. And I found that in Paul. It's ridiculous. And he has such an amazing background in, in, in just music. Bring all it. And I'm saying, where does this come from? Because you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, you don't all, but you're making all this music that, fits so perfectly with you know the stuff that I'm trying to but but it puts me in a situation when I have to react so that means that I have to grow I have to be able to do something that's a little outside of what I would think of myself and that's the most enjoyable thing about music like I said so much of that was inherent in in the opportunity that I had to work with all these musicians and, and recording things left unsaid but I had this experience working with Paul and mm -hmm. Paul is a tremendous producer he's also a master at Pro Tools, you know, the recording mm. software. Mm -hmm. So we can realize the ideas so fast 
that as soon as we got an idea, Paul can complete it. Or bam, bam, bam. It just moves so fast. And I'm sitting back and I said, I don't know where Paul gets this vocabulary from. I mean, he says he gets it from his mother, who was mm-hmm. a tremendous pianist and, and, and you know, um, singer and, and, and his whole family. Paul is the youngest of, of the five of them. Ricky is is tremendous keyboard player. His older brother, Billy, is two sisters, uh, Linda and Patty. But hands down, from somebody that just has a creative spark, Paul is this absolutely amazing musician. And in doing this album with him, provided me with so much opportunity to do so many things that I wouldn't have been able to do on my own. You know, and and that's what that project and what, what I hear and that, you know, I'm here. Well, that's me, but... Boy, that's not what I would have done if left to my own devices. That's because I'm, I, I've got Paul, like, you know, bringing all these other things. And, and, and a lot of it's not spoken because it's like now you've got somebody else you're answering to. Mm-hmm. I can't just come up and just skate with my own shit because, like, I got Paul here and said, you know, he'll turn around and say, Eric, I love you. But you, could you try to play something that I horn that you haven't played 10,000 times before? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and vice versa. Also, you know, Paul I said, "No, don't get you, you know, you know, yeah." I heard Stevie Wonder before. I don't need that. I, Hilarious, I, you know. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But those are the kind of things, and and that that's what Paul's Paul's terrific. I mean, in, in that regard. And I said, I've known this guy for like twenty years. I didn't realize until like only like five ten years ago. Oh my God, I've got this gold mine of 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 an artist here. So anyway, yeah. So we we will. We will do more. Absolutely. All right. So my second question is, I had the um, the opportunity to see both of these live performances in Minneapolis. One was at Dakota in 2017. Actually, St. Paul wasn't there because I think he was in Australia at the oh, time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you also did a performance at the Ice House in 2019. And I'm going to mm-hmm. be honest, like, and, the, and these were in April because celebrations, the Prince yeah. celebrations were happening in April then. Yeah. Now they've moved to June, and it just doesn't seem complete to go to celebration without seeing you or LP music. So I'm curious, like, what you guys consider doing a residency at the Dakota? Because I would come every night, uh, like, during celebration. Like, have you guys even talked about that? Because I'm sure a lot of the fans would love to see you guys play live. We we did talk about doing uh trying to put a kick a, a kick this year for the celebration um it just didn't happen and i, I can't really tell you why mm. you know um it was one of those things that yeah we need to address this and then before i realized it was like it was like the middle of may where, where, where we would have had would have had everything organized already and we just said eh, maybe it's a little too late mm-hmm. rather than try to cram something in um to be honest with you sometimes it's difficult for us to get the musicians we want Got it. Um, Stokely, you know, is is like one of our first calls. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Stokely is very busy, <laughs> you know, doing doing what he does. And it's sometimes a matter of, of trying to get everybody in one place at, at one time. And at my age, I'm not that interested in doing something unless I'm, I'm, I know it's like with the guys that I really want to, you know, do it with. Got um, it. As far as live gigs, once again, economics the unfortunate reality of of um doing bar bands is such that even for us there aren't too many venues that will give us a guarantee so basically we're working for the door 
And on any given night, that could be a nice night. But there are nights basically where I have to tell the music, you know, if I got guys that I said, OK, you're willing to do this. I said, are you willing at the end of the night that maybe you'll walk out of the gig with only 50 bucks in your pocket? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and sometimes it's even for me, I love this music, but I mean, I'm, I'm 71 years old. And it's like, you know, all of the shit that I got to go through is a young man's game because I got to schlep gear and everything. You know, we don't have the budget for roadies. We're, we're, we're schlepping everything. I'm schlepping shit just like I did when I was 20 years old. So I'm not 20 years old anymore. You know, I love playing that damn baritone. I don't like carrying that damn baritone. That thing is heavy. You know, so so it's like um, I have to really sit and I think I said, Am I really wanting to put all of the effort that I have to do in order to make this work? And I mm-hmm. have no idea at the end of the night what kind of money I'm going to be putting in my pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, so if mm-hmm. we could, you know, if we could talk to Dakota in wanting us to do a residency and being able to even like give them some guarantee, it's something that we would very, you know, very much look into. Um, one of the unfortunate aspects is when I look at the the the. Um, Everybody knows in the general economy of the United States of America, one of the most devastating aspects of it is the growth in inequality. You know, the, the gap between people at the lower end of an economic range and those in the middle and those in the upper class, greater than it's ever been. And it's what's going to destroy this country if it continues like this. And the music industry is no different. Mm-hmm. When I look at the kind of money that I used to make back in the late 70s and early 80s when I was a bar band musician, where I literally was in bands that were that were working like 275 gigs a year, hmm. and knowing hmm. the kind of money that I was making back then, in real dollars, I could put a band together in Minneapolis, and if even I could find the venues that I could work five or six nights a week, I would probably make less money in real dollars today than I was making as a bar band musician back in 1980. Hmm. Wow. That's the why, why is that, Eric? What's going because on? Because no. Nobody, nobody wants, nobody, you know, unless you are a marquee that can really demand a sold out, you know, house, which I'm, I'm not. I mean, for all the, you know, people who know me from the Prince crowd, you know, I may be a star for all of that. But when it comes right, to right, the right. actual marketplace for the music that I play, mm. uh-uh. and, um, you know, it, 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 ju- it just never happened the way that I would have liked to you know, to buy benefit. Now, I will say that there are some decisions that I've made in my career that maybe were not in my own best interest. I have no regrets of them, but mm. I, you know, I, I, I enjoy my life and always have enjoyed my life. So I, I have no regrets, but I was never at times the most ambitious about wanting to get out there and, and really wanting to make some of the sacrifices that I might've been, had to have made in order to, you know, build something over a period of time. So, um, reality you know the reality is is that and it's it's another thing too i understand nobody in 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 the bar band circuit on the club level is making a lot of money not even the club owners i mean you know it's always the thing i said i understand what that business is about so i understand when you're looking at the overhead of having a club you've got wait you know you've got the wait staff you've got a restaurant going on whatever and if you got if you've got musicians that you know, you can get maybe 15, maybe $20 at the door, and maybe you get 50 people in there. You know, they ain't a whole lot of money. Ain't nobody making money that night. You know, the, 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 the club might be making it at least on the food that they're selling, mm. but even that, they're barely breaking even too. 
So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like I don't understand the economic realities. Right. The other thing is this, is that um, the fact that it is so easy to just find music without having to leave your home. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I love YouTube. I can find anything. I mean, like as an Eddie Palmieri fan, not mm-hmm. being able to be in New York where the bulk of his gigs are, but almost every gig that Eddie Palmieri is that's on YouTube a day or two later. You know, and I can go to YouTube and I said, and Eddie Palmieri ain't making no money from me watching him on YouTube. Yeah. Anyone, mm-hmm. that, you know, so, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, there's a lot about about the business model of music that has changed. And, you, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I don't have any gripe with Taylor Swift selling, you know, playing in front of 100,000 people. Good for her. But, you know, what the hell does that do for me? You right. know, it's it's just it's a whole different thing. So, um, you know, a lot of people said, well, when are you coming to our town? I'll come to your town if you want to if you want to send me an airline ticket and, and, and provide me a hotel room. I'll be mm-hmm. there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll say um, less. OK, yeah. Yeah. So that that's that's the, the, the unfortunate reality is that the the lower, you know, the, the more less lucrative aspect of the business is, is less lucrative than I think it ever has been. Mm. You know, I, I don't I don't know how young I don't know how younger musicians you know are able to support themselves in the in the manner that even I was able to and you know it wasn't like I was rich. I mean you know I was working 275 gigs a year and at the end of every month I might have a hundred bucks in my checking account. You know but at least I had a roof over my head and I you know I, I could I could afford I could afford the, you know, some more Art Blakey albums, <laughs> you know, and but nowadays I I don't know how they I don't know how young kids do it. I really don't. Yeah. Do you get like, and I'm not trying to get all in your stuff, but I mean, just as you've been in this business for so long, mm-hmm. are you, and you know, we we hear about the actors striking all these types of things. Do you get some sort of royalties from any of these works that we talk about so much? Oh now? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the the the, the um, yeah the stuff that I I, I wrote you know with, with Prince, you know like okay. uh, and, and there there weren't that there really weren't that many you know that that I had a piece of. Um, I was a co-writer on "It's Going to Be a Beautiful Night," okay, you know, mm-hmm. and since that was on Sign of the Times, that was a big album, a huge selling album. I still get a nice little you know thing from that. Um, I got paid, you know, well for all the Madhouse stuff because okay. um, I didn't write, I didn't have any writers on the first album, but I had writers on, on a bunch of the songs on the second album. And, and of course, on, 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 you know, but um, when you have an album that only sells like 15,000 copies, there's, mm. you know, you get a royalty check and it might be for $9.90, you know, so, right. mm-hmm. but um, I have no complaints. You know, because I under, I understand I understand how the business works. Mm-hmm. Um, I I did well with Prince. You know, I, I I have I have little, you know, and and there were there were there were some times where Prince was very generous. You know, not always, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know the 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 times when Prince was generous, at least in certain circumstances with me, far outnumber and outweigh the times when I could have looked at Prince sideways and said, eh, "What's up with that?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I said. At the end of the day, the guy gave me a record contract mm-hmm. with a with a huge recording budget that was mm-hmm. completely inappropriate for the for the actual market for the music that I make, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and told me, 
here. Go. Do whatever the hell you want with this. What, what, how, you know, I can't complain about, you know, how many people would have given their first child to have an opportunity like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I got no complaints. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of things that might have fallen through the cracks over the years. But hey, you know, that's life. So this is our last slide for you, Eric. And I just, again, this week was Bonnie's birthday. Yeah. And any yeah. story I can, um, like anytime um, I would love to hear more stories about Bonnie. So I found this picture and it's Bonnie and I see Dwayne, Prince's brother. I see you and I see Atlanta yeah. Bliss to Atlanta the right. Bliss. Yes. The guy on the, the guy on the far end is Leroy Bennett. He was the production designer. He is probably next to Prince, the most important person of all of those tours. Uh, <laughs> most definitely. Yeah. And um, do you know who the female is next to? Yeah, that's uh, her name is Bevela. Um, she was Levi Cesar's wife oh. for a while. They were married for a while. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So she she was. Um, um, hair and makeup wardrobe on, on the tours with us. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, can you take us out with like a Bonnie story, or like, or when you think of Bonnie, like, like, does something come to mind, or just just a general feeling that she was a sweetheart, a really warm person, and funny. I mean, any situation that you were in, any room that you were in, as soon as Bonnie walked into the room, the, the vibe was going to be better. You know, she had just a wonderful sense of humor, very self-deprecating sense of humor. You know, she could laugh at herself. Um, mm -hmm. We had a wonderful time. You know, it, it, she, she was one of those persons that had an infectious laugh, too, because she was somebody, if she started laughing at something, even if you didn't know what she was laughing at, <laughs> you'd start laughing with her. You know, she, she was, yeah, just, just, a, just a, a, a joy to have, you know, around. And... Because of her personality, here, I, 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 I tell you, she, she had a sailor's mouth, you know what that means, <laughs> yes. You know? yeah. yes. which, which was very endearing to all of us, right? And she did not, she wasn't afraid of anybody, including Prince. <laughs> And undying respect, I mean, it was the boss and everything, and dying love and respect and love the gig that she had. But she could, and and because of her personality, she could say things to Prince that nobody else could get away with. <laughs> because Prince, you know, before she would say something, Prince would be in hysterics. <laughs> and then she could just take it from there, you know. So all I remember, what I do remember is on the, on the Love Sexy tour, for whatever reason, and I don't really know why, when Prince would do Purple Rain on, on that song, I played organ. I played the B3 on Purple Rain. I never asked him why. He just said, Eric, I want you to play. <laughs> you know, there, were, there was no horns on that song, obviously. Mm -hmm. It was just him mm -hmm. singing a verse going into the guitar solo. Mm -hmm. So he said, Eric, Eric, uh, why don't you play B3 on that? And I said, well, well it, Bonnie plays B3. He said, no, you play it instead. So, and the B3 was set up on the stage in her rig. You know, she had the B3 in her, in, in her corner. So I would put my horn on the stand, run over and jump up on, on, on and play B3. Now she would be singing background, she, you know, background of Purple Rain once it got to the choruses and everything. But Bonnie, for the rest of the 
while the song, you know, the first verse and during the guitar solo, Bonnie's just standing there next to me doing nothing, which was just weird because I'm playing her instrument and she's just standing there doing nothing next to me. Well, she was doing something. Every night she was in my ear <laughs> making jokes about Prince. Hilarious. <laughs> and some of the most foul mouth. You know, I mean, hilarious stuff that you can imagine every and I'm trying they're trying to play the damn song. Keep a straight face. They find shut up. Well, you just oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. You didn't say that, you know, every night it was like that. So, I mean, I just used to look forward. I said, let me get to the organ here. What Bonnie's going to say tonight. You know, yeah. yeah Thank that you. Was, jokes, that, for that. That was, yeah, that was my girl. Yeah. yeah awesome. Everybody loved Bonnie. Yeah. Well, thank right. you so much right, for taking time out of your day to be with us. I so wanted to hear about things thank left you. unsaid. Thank you so oh, much well, for talking I, about that album. I, I, th I thank you. I thank you for asking me about that album because that album obviously meant an awful lot to me. Yeah, and it means a lot to us. So enjoy the rest of your day. We're going to take you off right. the stream. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thank you. So okay. Much. Bye. <laughs> All right, so um, I guess you guys didn't hear at my back. Um, uh, you didn't hear, um, I, I guess, our back of house conversation we had last time. And I was like, we're going to have Eric Leeds on and I'm going to let him talk as, for as long as he wants to talk. Um, and so I did. So and I know that some of you uh, were getting a little impatient, but that's OK, um, because, you know, like anytime you can hear from anyone um, of Eric Leeds caliber who's willing to talk to us, um, that is just a blessing. So I hope that you enjoyed that interview um, with Mr. Eric Leeds. And what we're going to do is we're going to transition into week 30 of what did Prince do this week? Well, uh, hold up. Oh, I hate God. to do it, but I'm going to have to jet. Don't worry. No worries. I know you were probably going to have to jet. That's okay. Do you want to say anything before you go? Uh, just say, hey, author, D'Angelo, you guys got it. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. This was awesome. <laughs> awesome. Bye. And, uh, yeah, you know, do your thing, man. I'm going to watch the replay on this part. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Michael, for hanging out, and especially with um, Eric here. Really appreciate that. All right, you guys have a good one. All right. So, Arthur, are you going to leave me too? It's okay. <laughs> no, I'm not going to leave you. Okay, awesome. All right. So, we are going to transition to week 30 of What Did Prince Do This Week? And I'm going to go a little quicker than I normally would because of the time, but um, we do want to talk about Darling Nikki. And in the book, which I need to get... Um, hold on one second. Yeah, I'm opening my copy. Yep. And I don't have the expanded, but I remember oh, last okay. week it wasn't like a deal breaker. And okay. No, it, it wasn't really a deal breaker because it's actually kind of interesting to hear what the differences are. Um, and we're not going to read everything, obviously, because it's actually a lot of pages. Um, and so... Let's just talk about the basics. Basic tracking was done. Um, Dwayne says late July, 1983. Um, and it was at the Kawa Trail Home Studio mm -hmm. uh, with just Chan Hassan. And 
The pages are in the expanded edition, pages 108 through 116 is where we, um, where Dwayne actually writes about Darling Nikki. But before we do any reading, um, Arthur, is there anything that you want to say about Darling Nikki before we do a deep dive? Um, like, I guess when you heard the song originally, what was your response in real time to the song? So I heard the song, um, actually I heard the song in the car with my mom as we were driving home from her taking me to the record store to buy the Purple Rain album. Hmm. And um, uh, coming behind Computer Blue, which I remember that my mom actually saying that she, she, she really liked the father song part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that uh, the word masturbate got past her and some of the more <laughs> granular lyrical um, statements that Prince was making, you know, at the time. Um, but I was like really, really knocked out because this was kind of like, um, this was like a um, uh, terrible term, but this was kind of like mad scientist Prince. Mm -hmm. he I mean, he totally knew that, you know, it was him by himself and he was just, you know, in a zone, the same kind of zone, like, you know, something in the water mm -hmm. in 1999, for example. And um, with the, with the, uh, just the, the energy, the screaming, the guitar, the, 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 the synth licks, this, 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 just all of that was, that was going into it. And then behind that, you know, you've got this, you know, this backward message for you then, you know, side one of the tape is over, which was great about, about vinyl and also cassette tapes because there was like a clear side. Mm -hmm. um, so you had, you know, a very purposeful sequence and, and we know that Prince really liked to sequence his material. Um, uh, yeah, I was, I was blown away. It's, 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 it's my favorite song from Purple Rain short of When Doves Cry. Hmm. Um, and maybe an unintended or intended, but unintended consequence after that, which as, as a father of, of a 15 year old is kind of horrifying, but every <laughs> girl in the eighth grade that I knew whose name was Nicole became Nikki in like a week. <laughs> Everyone. 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 And um, that that was kind of life-changing um, for me <laughs> because you got to figure that every one of these girls had actually heard this song and, you know, they were just as, as uh, uh, you know, uber adolescent as I was as, you know, a 13, what, 13 year old boy at the time, you know, but, but it just kind of, it kind of gave you the effect of what Prince did for, for us as kids in that we, we, we may not have had a full understanding of what was transpiring in Darling Nikki, you know, mm -hmm. so much that, you know, we knew that we were coming into, um, we knew that we were, we were moving quickly toward adulthood and and we wanted to be a part of that like we want you know what i mean uh, uh, um you know uh, sexualized salacious i mean all of that all of that aside all of that aside it's like we wanted to be in that moment of having these experiences where it was 
possible to walk into a hotel lobby and then your whole weekend is transformed. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So I'm actually going to, just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip around. We're going to actually come back to the book because there's so much in the book. And before we discuss the book, um, I want to talk actually about Zach wrote, Zach Hoskins on the DMSR blog, wrote an article about Darling Nikki. And I want to read some of what he wrote. Um, And this is the DMSR blog. And this is actually Tipper Gore to the left, um, which is Al Gore's wife. You can see Mm -hmm. it here, this is Gore. Mm -hmm. And this uh, photo is actually from the PMRC, which is the Parents Music Resource Center committee hearing in DC on September 19th, 1985. And uh, really quickly, um, I'm sure everyone who is a Prince fan have heard of the Filthy, the Filthy 15, which the PMRC sort of attributed to um, sort of destro- destroying the minds of the youth. And um, if you read Dwayne's book, if you read Zach's ar- article, this actually came about because Tipper Gore's daughter actually listened to Darling Nikki, mm-hmm. or, or rather um, Tipper Gore found out about, you know, um, Darling um, Darling Nikki on the Purple Rain album, and she just freaked out. And yeah. what I find very interesting about the 5015, if you look at this really closely, is that technically there are two Prince songs, and then a third is, you know, a very close adjacency with Vanity, mm-hmm. 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 Rock, Baby, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was on Vanity's solo um, project uh, for Motown Records. And the other Prince song was Sugar Walls, right. you know, which was Sheena Easton. Right. Um, so, like, in Dwayne's book, um, actually, he has a quote from Prince, and the quote goes, um, when I was making sexy tunes, that wasn't all I was doing. Back then, the sexiest thing on TV was Dynasty, and if you watch it now, it's like the Brady Brunch. My song, Darling Nikki, was considered porn because I said the word masturbate. Mm-hmm. Tipper Gore got so mad, it's so funny now. So... Looking at this list, um, do you do you kind of agree with Prince? You know, Prince's synopsis that you know some of these songs, or do you agree that Tipper had a reason to kind of freak out? And back then, right. So I mean, again, this is PMRC, so this would have been like eighty-five, so like fourteen. So so I remember really really well when um, when when. Tipper and her homegirl went in front of Congress um, because I was uh, kind of a political buff mm-hmm. at that time. Um, again, understood, you know, barely anything, but I just, for whatever reason, I just kind of dug watching the news. And I remember this list and I remember that, that I knew like half of the songs that are on this list either heard of or actually had the records of. And um uh, I mean, thought it was funny, but the way that I remember it being presented was that Tipper had bought Purple Rain, the album, and had also bought Madonna's Like a Virgin album mm. f- for her daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I'm conflating the specifics, but you know, she passed it. Like, like I was listening to Darling Nikki in the car with my mom and it just got past her. 
apparently and didn't get past Tipper. And then, yeah, you know, she freaked out. Um, and as a parent, justifiably so, you would want to be concerned about what your child listens to. Um, I'm more sensitive about what my daughter listens to. So I could imagine that she would have been the same way. Um, you know, like, um, um, what's the song? WAP, W-A-P? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. W-A-P. Yeah, it absolutely horrifies me that my daughter would have heard that song. And mm -hmm. I mean, to the point where I'm gonna assume that she has, but I'm definitely not gonna ask, because I don't necessarily wanna know the answer to that. So, I, so, 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 you know, here I am, man of a certain age, I've got a child around the same age as Tipper's kid was at, at the time. Totally dig it, totally understand. Um, but what it did for me as a Prince fan, or at least how it affected my reaction to it as a Prince fan was that it was so cool that my guy was affecting change like this, that my guy's music was to the point where it was, he was forcing people to listen to his records. And that's what I kind of got into. But the, you know, the, the, the worst kept secret was that it wasn't so much that I knew a lot of these records. All my fans did too. It was like, mm -hmm. what, you, you know, you haven't heard Cindy Lauper's album? Right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, you, you don't have Madonna's album. I mean, I went to school with girls that were dressing like, like, like Madonna from uh, Desperately Seeking Susan. Mm -hmm. yep. And I knew girls that, you know, dressed, I knew girls that dressed like Vanity within a reasonable scope. I mean, I knew, you know what I mean? You know people like that because we reflect what we listen to. Mm -hmm. And that's what was happening, you know, in, 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 in the junior highs and in the high schools in 1980, you know, three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty much happening right now. Um, but what is, is, I guess, hmm, it's not so much that Nikki Dress You Up didn't even make sense to me. My thing was, I thought it was like, like a virgin. I don't, I don't remember it being Dress You Up. But, you know, but my thing is like, I kind of find it hypocritical that music with, let's call them racy lyrics, just happened. Right, right. And that's not the case. And that's, you know, and that's not the case. And- Blues tradition. Yeah, you know. And you know, I, you know, I say this a lot. So if you've if 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 you've heard me before, you know, forgive me. But you know, in 1971, uh, no, 1976. You know, Mick Jagger sings uh, "Black Girls Just Want to F All Night" on their "Some Girls" record on the song called "Some Girls," and nobody freaked out about that. Mm -hmm. um, years prior to that, Mick Jagger sings the song. I mean, these are Rolling Stone songs, but I mean, Rick Jagger's singing about brown sugar, mm -hmm. you know, and the song starts out, uh, um, you know, in the, uh, from the antebellum South perspective. Now, he's not talking about stringing black people up in, on, on trees or anything like that, but he's talking about brown sugar. What is that referring to? That's referring, about, referring to black women, and mm -hmm. that's referring to black women in a sexualized manner. Nobody's getting freaked out about that. But when um, a white woman who is married to a Senator, Al Gore, and has the, uh, the agency to be able to 
bring forth a black man singing a song about a woman masturbating in a hotel lobby in a magazine that under some guise of illusion was allowed to be put on a record that she herself bought for her daughter. To me, that says she's embarrassed of the fact that she bought this for her kid. Mm. And actually has some power to use that. And I get there are other songs on the list. I, I get all that. But it didn't, it didn't start with Wasp's Animal, I F Like a Beast. It didn't start with that. It started with Nikki. <laughs> it started with Nikki, yes. Let's be real about it. Yeah. You know, I feel some kind of way about that. I felt some kind of way. I felt some kind of way about it then without really having the language to be able to articulate it just was kind of funky you know but i really have you know a language for it now to call it for for what it is she was out to protect her child and the child and the children of her friends she yeah. was not there necessarily to protect me right that's yep. kind of how i feel about it so zaire's comment is also uh, a really good one to point out um meaning like the pmrc mm -hmm. It's understood in the context of the moral panic over sexuality in the 80s, also reflected in the refusal to come to terms with AIDS and education around use of condoms, et cetera. So I'm sure that was also an aspect of it as well. Yeah, I would think so. And, and, and Zaire brings up an, a, an amazingly uh, cogent point because uh, uh, you know at that time, AIDS was being forced into the popular conversation. Mm. Republicans in particular, they didn't really want to talk about AIDS because they were regulating that to the gay population, mm -hmm. very specific type of population. Um, and he may be able to say better than I do because I just don't remember when, when the Reagan administration acknowledged AIDS as a either epidemic or pandemic, but I think epidemic. I, you know what I mean? They didn't acknowledge AIDS for a while. Mm. But he's absolutely right. Yeah, indeed. Um, so I want to read a little bit from Zach's blog. So let me put that back on the screen. And then let's see, Mark's saying the PMRC had a problem with John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. They swore up and down. It was about drugs. It wasn't. Um, so from Zach's article, I really love this quote from Lisa Coleman. Um, and Lisa says, Prince would imitate an old granny, like you can make granny dance to this one. But then I think he was he was just like, we're leaning in too far to the granny. We still need danger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I just absolutely love that quote. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit um, from this. So Darlene Nikki would become Purple Rain standard bearer for the danger of Prince album's post recorded by Prince in his home studio, um, built in the liner notes as a place very close to where you live. Sometime in mid to late July of 1983, the song even sounds dirty, not just in the sexual sense though, of course it is that too, but mm -hmm. in terms of pure fidelity, like a grubby fingerprint on the album's otherwise spotless surfaces. And that's not to mention its unforgettable opening vignette I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. Surprisingly, those lines weren't part of the original vision for the song. An early draft published as part of Prince's posthumous memoir takes a decidedly sillier track 
I got a girl named Nikki. Thank God that she's fine. It begins twice. She cooked me dinner. Tastes like S-H-I-T both times. <laughs> Thank <laughs> God Nikki's fine. The girl can't cook, but Lord, she can grind. And that's <laughs> from um, the beautiful ones, the lyrics that he has on his page as well. Um, the discarded verse stands as rare evidence that Prince's lyrical genius could be iterative as well as intuitive. The repetition of thank God that she's fine feels like an awkward placeholder. More importantly, the overall premise is back. I'm mean, sorry, hackneyed more like the low hanging fruit for a stand up stand up routine or in Prince's term, a time sketch than the opening of an iconic story song. One can see Prince decide as much on the page. He toys with pushing the lines into the second verse, penciling in a two on the left margin, then thinks better of it and crosses out the verse entirely. The rest of the lyrics are more or less exactly as recorded. So um, I, you know, we've been looking, you know, a little closer at the lyrics that Prince, um, a, a little bit of his songwriting pre process, which I always find fascinating um, to see the actual handwritten lyrics um, that you can see of Darling Nikki and the, um, the Beautiful Ones memoir um, and seeing, you know, how he obviously changed that opening to a much stronger, you know, intro just from a storytelling um, point of view. And I, only reason why I'm saying this, Arthur, is that people don't talk about Prince's songwriting enough. Yeah. I give him credit as a songwriter. And I do think that um, Darling Nikki really paints a, a, a picture <laughs> really clearly and probably <laughs> um, out of the gate. Um, and I want to see what Zaire is saying. Um, Reagan acknowledged it in 1987 that Prince conferences made mockery of it. Prince was a pioneer in that as well, with sign of the times. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Um, and Baby Love, I love your name by Baby Love 14. Mm -hmm. um, there are many more <laughs> that are more dirty than darling Nikki. Um, so going back to the book, um, I do want to um, read a, a couple of things. So in my book, in the expanded edition, I want to I'm gonna read a couple highlighted sessions. So I'm going to be all over the place. Do you think? So um, I don't hear this, so I'm curious if you hear this. So Dwayne writes, Seemingly inspired by a riff from Vanity Six's three times two equals six that progressed down the musical scale, Darling Nikki was a very sparse tune relying largely on Prince's live drums and keyboards with a few guitar accents added to the mix. Do you hear it? Um, I never heard it before. And when I read it too, my, you know, I did raise my eyebrows and thought about it. And I said, okay, I can kind of see where he's, where he's, where he's coming from with that. And, um, um, you know, it really, it actually wouldn't surprise me if, mm -hmm. if, if that was an idea that he, that Prince, you know, repurposed for Nikki as, as, as framework, it wouldn't, um, he's done this before. He's done this, uh, what, three times, I think I counted for sex shooter. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, even as late as Billy Jack bitch on gold, he's got that same synth line, um, but yeah, I never really, I never, I never really heard it. But I, but I respect the fact that 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 Dwayne heard it because there's some, there is some context there. Yeah. So um, 
Another part I, I love reading this, uh, once all the elements were added, the vocals were recorded. As with the song itself, the vocals go from calm, almost passive, to passionate screaming. And there's this quote from Lisa, sometimes when he's alone, especially when he's alone, especially, he can reach these places that are just unbelievable. He's an impressive screamer. And I really do think that Darling Nikki is like exhibit A of Prince <laughs> yeah. as a screamer. Um, so I loved reading that. And then even Wendy added only a few people can scream like that, uh, which is true. And then so Dwayne writes, the screaming and pleading vocals were a very effective encounter to the sparse sections of the song and were probably the reason Prince referred to the track as the coldest song ever written. Mm -hmm. Because he worked alone on many of his home sessions, Prince would have to press record and then walk over to the drum kit. And then when he was finished, walk back to stop recording. And Lisa says that's how it was back then. And this is like a, a really long quote from Lisa that I'm going to read because anytime I can hear about Prince's studio um, process, I, I want to hear it. And I think others should, too. So this is Lisa. I'm not kidding. He'd start with the drums but he'd already have the song in his head and he'd go press record on the machine and then run over to the drums and you'd hear him jumping over things and tripping over wires. <laughs> he'd sit down on the drums and then count himself off, tick, tick, tick. And then he'd play and sometimes he'd have lyrics written down on a piece of notebook paper. And so he'd try to sing it in his head and sometimes you'd hear him kind of grunting and singing a little bit of the song on the drum track. And then he'd imagine in his head like, he told me this, like, you have to kick the bass player's ass. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're playing the drums, kick the other guy's ass. Put things in there that's going to make the other guy, which was all him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. do, something, do something unexpected or try to keep up. So it was so cool because then the, drums tr the drum track would be down, and then he'd go and get the bass and play the bass, and then that weird drum lick would come up, and then he'd go, oh, and then try to kick the guitar player's ass, et cetera, et cetera. What a quote. <laughs> yeah. It's like he's putting things into, into his parts that's going to trigger a memory for him to react a certain way. Yeah. When, I mean, he, when he picks up this, uh, another instrument. I, mean, I think that's just so, so brilliant. Um, so another thing I wanted to read. Let's see. Is on page 111 if you have the um, expanded edition. Because I still, I'm curious how you respond to this part that Dwayne wrote. Okay, Vanity was still the movie's female lead, Purple Rain is what we're talking about. And in Prince's handwritten notes about the script, he suggested that her character's name be changed to Nakathra Ann, aka Nikki, so the song would fit well into the film. The character's name didn't change, but Darling Nikki resonated with director Albert Magnoli. Vanity is dangerous. She has a dangerous mm -hmm. sexuality. I mm -hmm. hear Darling Nikki, and I immediately knew that, and ultimately, I just sensed that this is going to become very controversial. And I knew it was extremely dark compared to all other things. And I knew narratively I was going to be in a very dark place with these characters anyway, because now they're going to start to betray each other. So there's two questions for you, Arthur. Mm -hmm. One is Nakathra Ann. Like, where is Nakathra? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, of course people called her Nikki. 
Yes, of course. Like, like, Prince usually does really good with coming up with names and stuff, but Narcarthra, like, where do you know? I haven't, I didn't do it. sounds like a condition. Yeah, condition. I didn't do my Googles. Maybe somebody out in the chat Googles on what is Narcarthra. I don't know. And then the second thing is, I've always thought of this. I really wish that Vanity would have been in Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I don't think it would have done as well with Vanity in it. And the reason why is actually what Albert Manoli is talking about. Vanity is a, a little more like mysterious, mm-hmm. not as pop uh, mm-hmm. as let's say an Apollonia, who's more like... Safe? Yes. There yeah, you go. Okay. So... And it's just so uh, this is this is me coming off the cuff. So God help us all. <laughs> you know, I, I, so I like to I like to sometimes separate um Prince prior to 1991 um and then post where post 1991 release of Diamonds and Pearls, it's more of a confident Prince in his in his in his, in his lyrics. And pre-1991, it's more of a vulnerable prince in his lyrics. And then, of course, there's a time period where those two types of princes blend. So so in the 80s, and even with Nikki, you know, he is, um, um, Nikki is leading this experience. Um, prince is a willing participant. Um, Dorothy Parker, uh, Dorothy led the experience, Prince was a willing participant. Um, something in the water, um, you know, he's been hurt by 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 his love interest. Um, th- so we we have many many different exp- uh, examples, you know, of that. And then you know, Prince talking about sex. Um, for the for the better part, there's always a danger component to the sex. Jack you off. I mean, it's the name of the song. Forgive me. Jack you off. There's there's a danger of being caught. Um, you know, Nikki. There's a danger to his, like his 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 health. Room spinning. She's pulling out devices, and I don't. You know what I mean? This is like my. I'm basically recording this message. So if you all don't hear from me, this is what happened. Um, <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Yeah, that's brilliant. You know, and, and 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 so so I get that that kind of danger was ascribed to vanity at her inception. Nasty girl, she's telling you who she is, and um, you know she's. So I I I that's a really good observation about Apollonia possibly being the better the better romantic interest because for pop audiences. For pop audiences, because it's like a better sell, right? Because she's because she's safer, and and in Purple Rain, you know, Prince is leading the experience and inviting the experience, and Apollonia being a willing participant. You might not have gotten that with you know with Vanity as the character, with Denise Matthews as the Vanity character doing doing Vanity stuff. I, I yeah, I totally, I totally totally get that. Now, I want to respond to this comment, um, AJJ132, but she did The Last Dragon. And The Last Dragon did very well. 
But for me, The Last Dragon was a pop movie, meaning like, you know, it 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 was like um, optimistic. It was upbeat. It yeah. was fun. Yeah. Parts of Purple Rain were really dark. And also, right. you know, at one point when Wednesday was supposed to be in the movie, the song Wednesday that Joe Jones um, mm-hmm. sung, you know, there was, you know, I, I, there's suicide that is mentioned in the lyrics of Wednesday. And then even with the flashback that Prince has when he's in the basement, you know, the kid, you know, after John, um, you know, his father goes to the hospital, like he imagines himself, you know, hanging himself. Now. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Purple Rain is, you know, is a really dark movie. And the only reason why it's not as dark as it could have been is because of Moore's day. And like the you right. know comedic levity that um, he, he and Jerome Ben brought to the film, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I really do think that Purple Rain would not be the same film with Vanity in it, not because Vanity is dark, but because mm-hmm. of the script at the time, and I think the direction that Prince had for her, as opposed to Apollonia. Um, you that's mean like their their actual interaction on screen, Prince and Vanity, based on their having a relationship? And no, no, not even like the personal relationship, but just like what you were saying in terms of how he positioned Vanity Six, yeah, as opposed to Apollonia Six, yeah. Like I don't see them as the same group. I see them. I mean, I okay, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, Apollonia Six as a continuation of Vanity Six and Spirit. The only thing they have in common are obviously Susan and Brenda, Mm -hmm, but um, mm -hmm. I feel like, um, yeah, Vanity, uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that Vanity and Apollonia were not interchangeable. No, not even close. Yeah, not even close. Um, Yeah, Prince and Vanity together are probably the closest thing um, at the risk of sounding like, you know, this is better, like we need our own version of it. I don't mean it that way. But from a pop slash rock slash, you know, pers- uh, um, media perspective, Prince and Vanity are the closest thing that we have to say Sid, Vicious, and Nancy. Yes, think of the Rolling Stone cover. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Her hand is casually down, down, down his pants. They're both staring at the camera. They, they, you know, it, you mess with these two. You need to act like you know. You know, we're letting you know up front what you're what you're going to be getting. And I do feel that that would have been a completely um, different tone um, of a film, to like. Okay, can you imagine Prince backhand and vanity? In that, <laughs> in that, it's going to be a fight. You know, you wouldn't really have that. And and uh, I so I do I, I I do agree with you. But but I think I would have preferred to. I think I would have preferred to see Vanity in Purple Rain as opposed to Apollonia, if only because the 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 ensemble cast that were in that film, they all came up together. They all knew each other. They were all a family. So there was a certain uh authenticity to their relationships on screen. Mm-hmm. Because it was informed by their personal relation, you know, personal relationships. Like, like, I believe that Prince and Morris really got down like that at a certain level, particularly, you know, if Morris isn't getting paid, <laughs> like he feels he needs to, you know, um, Prince fired two members of his band, 
you know, you know what I mean? Like th that's, that's in the acting. That's what you show up for. Um, you had a great conversation um, that I was privy to. You made me privy to. I appreciate that too. But you had a great conversation with Jesse Johnson and Jesse Johnson got into how it was filming that and how, you know, Morris all but phoned it in, but, it was Morris, so it was so well because he's naturally funny. Jesse would talk about how naturally funny and how Morris was funny. He's like, man, Prince can be funny. No, but Morris is funny, you know? Um, so I think that Purple Rain with Vanity as whoever the hell Nikki, she, her character was supposed to be named. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would have really been an interesting, um, put an interesting slant on 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 the storytelling and um uh i mean i'm not gonna get into whether or not it'd been more successful or less successful because i don't think that you know matters purple rain is you know it is it, is what it is um but there are times that the music doesn't fit with the film and nikki is exactly. one of those times yes exactly with i i started that conversation and you actually finished where I wanted to end up on that period. So yes. And, and do, Nikki, Duff. yes, yes. <laughs> we coordinate. <laughs> right. Right. Um, all right. So I want to read the status at the end of the first section, which is on page 111. And we're not finished because um, um, Dwayne continues to talk about Darling Nikki. But um, the status says by the end of the session, Darling Nikki, four minutes, didn't include the extended blend of sound effects and backward vocals that followed on the version released on the Purple Rain album, which was four minutes and 15 seconds. On this date, the track contained an additional half minute middle breakdown that would ultimately be removed. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Purple yeah. Rain, super yeah. deluxe. Um, there's some indication that the track may have been started as early as May 2nd, 1983, but this date has not been verified. Okay. Um, I want to read another paragraph from um, page one one twelve because we've been talking. Well, we haven't really talked been talking about him, but we've been saying his name a lot. Don Batts, who was Prince's recording engineer before Susan Rogers. Um, Darling Nikki was the last track recorded by Prince's longtime home engineer Don Batts, who left because of a dispute with Prince. This is Don Batts speaking. There were some broken promises to me from Prince's management bonuses and things I was supposed to get that never materialized and my salary was being cut. And I wonder why his salary is being, that, that seems very odd to me. I was pretty much putting my heart and soul into the job. I hadn't had a day off in years. Mm -hmm. I asked Prince for help, but he wasn't taking care of me any longer. He really wasn't listening anymore. So I was really sad um, to hear about that. And um, in this particular part of the chapter, Dwayne pretty much talks about um, Susan Rogers coming in and mm -hmm. setting up um, a new console mm -hmm. and um, that Prince didn't, didn't like after Susan put it together and he wanted his um, old one back and it costs a lot of money in order to do all of that because the, the new console costs a lot of money. But I'm not going to read all of that. That's hopefully everyone out there, you're doing your reading. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, you want to, to do that. The one part that stood out to me in this little part here was um, 
while Rogers pieced together the new elements for Princess Basement Studio, he was upstairs working with Susan Moonsey and Brenda Bennett, two-thirds of Vanity 6 and eventually Apollonia 6 on music for Purple Rain. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I wish that, I wish, I, I wish I, um, Susan, well, maybe we could ask Susan Rogers, like, what that, if she remembers, I know it would be really hard for me to remember what happened yesterday, but what song they were working on, because yeah. it'd be interesting to know if it was, you know, Sex Shooter or if it was something else that maybe didn't even make the cut of the film. Um... I'm not going to read that to make up for time. One thing I do want to read is on the page 116, I'm going to read some of this. So this is Susan Rogers. I was stunned at Darling Nikki. He asserts his dominance simply by allowing the woman to be dominant. And that's kind of your mm -hmm. Arthur that you made, allowing her to be the antagonist and for himself to be the protagonist, he's able to show a lot of strength there. What I find interesting about it is that it is not the point of conquest, it's the joy of being conquered. If you recall the lyrics on the song, and she is the seductress, not him. Mm -hmm. Others in the band were equally impressed. I loved it when I first heard it, remembers Matt Fink. And this is Matt Fink. I like that one a lot. You know, controversial, I thought, this is the unusual, this is, wait, hold on. Controversial, I thought, this is the usual, let's go overboard on the sex stuff. But my sensibility all along was this is scary. You're treading some dangerous water with all the sexuality, but that was his vision. Now, when I was reading this, as soon as I read that, and I, you know, this isn't my first time reading this, but there are two songs that popped up in my head. One was Head, mm -hmm. the other one's Sister. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I just find it interesting that Dr. Fink says, you know, that this is scary. I, I don't think it's a scary. What, what, why do you think he's saying that after, you know, being in the band and performing the Dirty Mind songs? Do you understand why? Um, no, I don't understand. But what I, but what I, what I can see when you bring up Head and Sister, um, Head, head and sister fit better with the idea of shock value to get an effect from an audience or critics to write about your stuff. Um, then Nikki, even though both Nikki and head, sister too, but both Nikki and head are done more of a narrative style. Like this is how it started. This is what was happening during, and this was what the end of it was. And you kind of don't get that with with um, with Nikki in that way. But I'm uh, excuse me with with sister in that way, um, you know. And so so I think that with Nikki, because um, of the capsule started spinning, she pulled out all so many devices. Um, sign your name on the dotted line. Sign your life away. Um, the 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 urgency in his vocal, particularly at the last section of it, with the screams of either ecstasy or abject fear and peril, however you want to play that, does cast a quote unquote darker mood over Nikki. 
Um, and and this is probably like super trivial, but you can't dance to Nikki. Mm-hmm. 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 If you're gonna listen to Nikki, it's because you're gonna you're forced to listen to Nikki. That's a good point. Whereas head is 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 you, you know what I'm saying? You don't necessarily have to be engaged in what he's talking about to right, get right, 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 right. Because and while you're saying that, I remember. I mean, my at the time, my three year old cousin who's now in her 30s singing "Cream Get on Top." You know, as a as a three year old, she didn't know yes. what she was singing, right? But because it was musical, you know what I mean. But you right. have like a, such a great point with darling Nikki, and I do want to um, read this comment from. Alisa in the chat, um, Matt's comments feel like a backward looking reflection. Head and sister weren't chart busting like Darling Nikki. Seems to me he wouldn't say that not knowing how big the movie was going to be. Um, <clears throat> so, Arthur, if you have your book, um, wherever the, the last paragraph, it should be in italics uh, right before August 1983. It's like 100 is, uh, page 116 in my book, but it starts off the Soundcraft sound craft board i'm there yep i'm with you can you read that sure the sound craft board would ultimately be replaced again when he upgraded his studio the following year but the console that was removed ended up staying in the prince family when it was sold to time guitarist jesse johnson prince sold me his Soundcraft recording board for twenty three thousand dollars he used that same board to record 1999 what time is it and purple rain I went to the Civic Center where he was doing dress rehearsals for the Purple Rain tour in October 1984 and gave him the check. That's how I was able to finish my studio. So, again, you really have to read the entire chapter to get the context of what was going on in the boards, because that's a, another narrative that's happening throughout these chapters about Darling Nikki. And I think it's a really important <clears throat> The reason why I wanted Arthur to read that or for us to to point that out is that that board had a life <laughs> right it created a lot of hits um not just for prince but also for jesse uh, so this is something to know i want that this um comment from mila in the um comment just cracked me up in terms of darren and nikki you can pole dance to it um <laughs> can <so> you <laughs> can you mila <laughs> yes all right so I want to actually read what Seeley wrote about Darling Nikki in his book, um, <clears throat> The Lyrics of Prince Rogers and Essence. So give me one second. It's just a couple pages, which I found rare when it came to Seeley, that it's just a, a couple pages. All right, here we go. Um, Darling Nikki is a storyteller at his best. It is the sketch of Lady Cab Driver made into a tale. Unlike the male and Lady Cab Driver who is seeking temporary escapism, the protagonist in Darling Nikki is expecting Nikki to be there in the morning. According to Paulette Richards, author of the Terry Macmillan, A Critical Companion, the narrative and imagery of the song seem to be borrowed from a satanic ritual. Sign your name on the dotted line and from Keats' poem, La Belle Dame Sans Mercy, this is an example of Prince's ability to co-opt images and icons from other cultures and manipulate them for his own purposes. The rendezvous with Nikki is the final descent into hell, a final mm -hmm. embracing of the physical pleasures of life, which causes our protagonist to realize that the physical world would not yield what he needs to involve. Interrupt me if you ever want to say anything about what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. 
It is obvious that the protagonist in the Purple Rain songs is expecting to gain more from his sexual expeditions than those in the past. He is not just looking to escape or pass the time. He is truly searching for the higher spiritual plane. The use of the satanic elements represents the misguided desires of the male. Instead of trying to commune with her soul to find salvation, he tries to commune with her flesh and finds only damnation and loneliness. Try as he might, the protagonist is unable to grind his sorrows away. Hmm. All of this is to say nothing of the male protagonist being left behind by a bold, sexually dominating female. This song is commenting on the schizophrenia of the male, which causes him to construct an adversarial and maternal relationship with the female. The kid performs the song when his love interest Apollonia enters the club with his rival Moore's Day. Apollonia is with Day because the kid refused to help her pursue a career in the music business. Thus, by performing Darling Nikki when she arrives at the club, the kid is questioning, if not denouncing, Apollonia's use of her physical to get what she wants. The audience should see the kid's anger as a symbol of male schizophrenia. He demonizes her for using her physical attributes to survive, but he wishes to use her physical being as a trophy of his male conquest and prowess. The dream of Darling Nikki is conjured by the male psyche, his schizophrenic's perception of woman as damsel and vixen, which creates a wonderful piece of storytelling. From the introduction of her masturbating in a hotel lobby, to mm -hmm. the description of her gadgets and her sexual prowess, to her disappearance in the morning, it all makes for an excellent tale of the sexual she-devil, which lurks in the minds of men obsessed with sexual conquest to prove their male worth. Prince is showing that this conquest is meaningless because real salvation cannot be found in the libido, but the kid gets our empty orgasms, which leave him still longing. Woke up the next morning, Nikki wasn't there. I looked all over, and all I found was a phone number on the stairs. So do you have any reflection, <clears throat> excuse me, about Celie's comment about the schizophrenia of male as it relates to darling Nikki? Well, first of all, that's incredibly deep. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> Me neither. That's why I wanted to read it. Yeah. Um, one way that I had thought about the 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 Nikki character um, years later, after I heard uh, the ballad of Dorothy Parker, and then years after that, when I was just you know kind of reflecting mm. on things, where you know could it be that that both women, but Nikki in particular, that these were I mean, cries for help. Um, not so much to be helped by some male figure to either take care of them or be some sort of patriarchal uh, figure, um, but that the, the, the lives that they were living at that moment were, 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 were cyclical, they were circular. And that the only value that they had, uh, and let me leave Dorothy out of it. That's kind of like another kind of thing. But it was just the idea of, okay, well, you know, hey, you want this fruit cocktail? You know what? By the way, you're kind of cute. You want to take a bath? And then we kind of do that um, to where, you know, Prince walks into hotel lobby, sees a woman, um, you know, uh, you know, doing some penthouse type stuff and engages in that, you know, and could it be that, that Nikki doesn't, 
like Nikki doesn't have it within herself to make some type of personal connection with someone. Mm-hmm. And Dorothy Parker in that kind of same way where she just loves, falls in love so fast to the point where she wants to, you know, not get to know the person, but to just, you know, engage with the person. Although I've got this other theory that, you know, the sex never happened in Dorothy Parker. Mm-hmm. Like you really I, just I took always, a bath. Yeah, I always a weird set. Yeah, I, I did too. You know, um, but, you know, in both cases, you know, he meets this woman and something immediately happens that completely escalates, <laughs> you know, in a matter of moments. And, and, and with Nikki, it's at the most extreme moments where, you know, is Prince now a client? Was Prince going to be a client? But after the fact, you know, Nikki actually liked him. So maybe she wasn't going to charge him, rip up the agreement that he signed and left her number so that she could meet him again. You know, don't really know. Were the screams of ecstasy slash agony, could they be of screams of, of longing from Prince? that he wanted to make some kind of personal connection with Nikki. And I know you know, you're going way, way, way down the rabbit hole, but I mean, this is week by week reading what Prince did 40 years ago. So this is, this is the kind of conversation that we need to have, <laughs> yes. you know? So, so um, I would have to kind of sit with what C. Lee was saying, what was, you know, writing, because there were like real legs to that. Um, and, you know, and I don't think, you know, I mean, there was, a, I think there was a reason why Prince, and in part in shock value, I do feel that, but not in the same way as Head, but I do feel that there was a reason that Prince, Prince cast away the kind of silly-ish, she can't cook, but man, she can certainly grind type mm-hmm. of original lyric and mm-hmm. actually put it in more of a context of where it was this, this core risk to be involved with this person. Yeah. Um, I don't think that this was designed to be some kind of, you know, throwaway song for any matter. But 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 going back to the club scene in Purple Rain, where, where we see Nikki being performed in reaction to Apollonia talking with Morris. Um, I think I think it was one of those situations where the scene needed to be created around the song to find a way for the song to actually fit the situation in some manner, because we're led to believe that Prince was actually angry. Like he saw this called up Nikki and then sang the song as if it was a song wherein he was angry. But when you listen to Nikki, I don't, I don't feel that Prince was angry. So it doesn't connect in the same way in the film as it would, as it would otherwise. In fact, to me, Computer Blue is the more appropriate song. For right. That. Yeah. Thematically. Yeah. No, I agree. I always felt that Darling Nikki was, I mean, I love the song. Uh, Don't get me wrong, but in the context of the film, Mm -hmm. it felt not completely odd, but a little odd um, in the the film. I think it's like the most Prince song on the album in the beautiful ones. But, you know, I mean, I think that's like that's like where he was like where he was at career wise at that time. That's like pure Prince. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a pure prince. It's it's, a, it's definitely what I call a capital P prince. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. Is there so there's a some small rabbit holes I want to go down, but is there anything else you want to say about darling Nikki? Are we good? Are we moving away from Nikki? Yeah, we're moving away. If that's okay. Did you know that the Foo Fighters did a cover of Darling Nikki? 
I think I knew that, but I put that on my mental Rolodex, not because I didn't like it or anything. It's just that, um, yeah. Bam. Okay. <laughs> so the Foo Fighters in 2002 did a uh, released, uh, I forget the name of the album. It's on here, but it's small print and we're just rolling along. But um, they did a cover of Darling Nikki. Um, it was only released in uh, Australia, possibly the UK, but I actually don't believe so. Although Australia at the time was part of the UK, I think still is. That doesn't matter either. It's not a great cover, but it's not a bad cover. The coolest thing about the, about the Foo Fighters cover of Darling Nikki is that Dave Grohl, who is risking all of it vocally to try to match the screaming and the passion of Prince's vocal in the song, it's 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 that it's like it's a cover done by a famous band who is paying tribute to their favorite artist as genuinely as they can and it's done as sort of like a full like you know rock fashion it's like there's no sense in it or anything like that and it's just like it's like a hundred percent love that i hear in the nikki cover and i'm not generally a fan of people doing prince covers right i don't think they translate very well no. um but with that one and the other exception being uh, she's always in my hair. The D'Angelo cover with Raphael Sadiq and Questlove, pretty much the only covers that I really uh, that I really like. Um, Shaka's "I Feel for You" that's 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 kind of something else. I mean, it's more of a pop vehicle, and that's that's cool. But it's like I don't really listen to it anymore. I and then Melissa Morgan. I feel for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I never liked Shaka's. I mean, and and actually, Shaka spoke about this um, at celebration. If I remember correctly, because um, I might get the interviews, but she didn't like the, you know, Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. Mm -hmm. um, and because <laughs> she says she hears it, you know, even now, like people come up to her and kind of say that. And I'm sure that's like super annoying, you know. I'm sure it's super annoying. And, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, you know, Warner Brothers taking license of the wave of Purple Rain and, you know, trying to capitalize on that and, and everything. So it kind of, it, it, like I say, I mean, it's what it is and I don't ever really reach for it anymore. But every once in a while I reach for, I reach for the Foo Fighters cover. And every <laughs> once in a while, I definitely reach for the, she's always in my hair cover. That's probably my favorite cover. Um, and in both cases, you know, I just believe that these are artists who love this artist and want to do it because it's this artist and this is this is the most genuine version that they could do of a song. Yeah. All right, rabbit hole. All right, before that, I want to say Blake Brown said Darling Nikki was like misguided anger on the kids part in the movie. It showed he was a bit off his rocker at that point. And then Love Sexy Son 1 saying definitely a payback song in the movie. The first song, Beautiful One, was to get you. Darling Nikki was to disrespect you. And then Sakara says, I actually prefer Prince's version over Chaka Khan's, even though I like both. Mm -hmm. Now, Sakari has in here, um, I just read Ruth Violet's blog, a medium about Prince's reaction to the Darling Nikki cover. It was great. I actually don't know. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to see that. Yeah, I'm trying to pull it up, but then um, when I do, let me see if I can try again. 
or if you can put it in the link, if you can put a link in the chat, mm -hmm. Sakara. Um, While that's happening, I, you know, I, I have seen Purple Rain so many times. And um, to make it, to keep it interesting for me, um, I, as late, you know, I really like to separate the album from the movie, um, which probably isn't fair or possible because much of the much of the music, if not every song, but I mean, much of the music was designed to be in the film. So I, I you know, I totally respect that. But I think last week I was getting into you know those those thirty some odd days that the Purple Rain the album was out before the film. And I feel that the film Purple Rain was so dependent on the music um, that you can't separate the music from the film. But I believe that you can separate the film from the music. If that makes sense. I don't think the album Purple Rain was so much dependent on the visuals. And Nikki is, 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 is for me, the best example of that. Because it, if you really want to, and we are, I am, getting all into it and then onto the nitty gritty, you know, Nikki, the song doesn't fit the scene in the film. It just doesn't, yeah. not that, not that song. It just doesn't right. fit in yeah. the film on um, what Prince's reaction would be. All right. So thank you, Zaire. Um, Zaire gave it to me. Um, and I'm going to read, I'm not going to read all of it because it's kind of long. Um, and I'm just going to start where it seems like there's a, a natural starting point. Um, and uh, I, I guess I should read this a little bit um, at the, towards the beginning of the article, Ruth writes, 2005 was a tough year. Prince was going through a personal metamorphosis that would take him into 2006. Internally and externally, those two years were heady with shows, launching new albums, filming a movie, legendary house parties and music, lots of music, which would inevitably lead us to the 2007 Super Bowl. And here's the conversation. He was filming a movie. Yeah, I think it was like, wasn't he movie, filming a movie for like 3121? Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. Um, so here is Ruth speaking. After that show, I said, Radiohead is, uh, oh, let me read this paragraph first. Afterwards, Prince ensnared me into a discussion about music, specifically rock music, and he asked me what I liked. Growing up in church, I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music, so I told him the list was short, but growing. Hmm. After that show, I said, Radiohead is definitely on the list. I love Coldplay, Muse, and honestly, the Foos are my spirit animal. Mm. I clutched my invisible pearls, <laughs> rolled my eyes, and I feigned a swoon. He laughed. What about Nine Inch Nails? Prince asked. Oh, mm. I haven't really listened to them. You mean him, he said. Who? Trent Reznor. He is Nine Inch Nails. I really like him and what he's done. He's a bit of an outlier like me. Prince was looking at me head down, eyes up like a school mom ready to give me a pop quiz. Do you have Coldplay and the Foo Fighters last album? He asked sternly. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I do. Chris's last album was pretty good, he smirked. Yeah, I know because I bought them for you, Ruth says. Sometimes I was a little too quick with the one-liners. He glowered a, a bit and exposed the side smile with the dimple expressing exasperation. And this is Prince speaking. The point is, Ruth, if you really enjoy the artists, you need to be buying their music and supporting them in concert. Most don't have a 401k or insurance. This mm -hmm. is how they make their living. They live through their art. 
like a scorned pupil. I keep my I kept my head down and sheeplessly nodded. His tone softened at his next question. Why do you like the foods? We were in the upper living room of Carlos Boozer's home that we were renting. It was a multi-level estate. His master bedroom was just above the first living room. Yes, I said first living room. There were technically three, I think. My head popped up and I brightened. Oh, I nearly shouted. I love this grunge rock thing they do. Angry, melodic, dark music, but with bright chords. He looked at me quizzically as he softly padded his way up to his bedroom. What do you know about chords? Keep talking, he said as he disappeared. I love how Dave Grohl just screams everything like his guts are on fire, I yelled. I mean, Prince was pretty far away. Yelling seemed natural. What else, he yelled back. That drumming and the melodies, they get in my veins and they play your song, Darling Nikki, like they own it, I screamed. I instantly realized my fat mouth was going to do me in. Prince reappeared with two shot glasses of Patron Platinum Tequila. As, his, as he got closer, his big eyes had become slits. He stared hard at me as he handed me my shot glass and said, what did you say? Also, sip this, don't gulp it. I don't need you running around the place laughing like a hyena. This was in reference to a hideous laugh that on occasion emerges from the hollows of my black soul and, want, and which once Prince brought and which once brought Prince to real tears as he slid down a staircase laughing at my screeching yowls. I promise I'll sip, I said, as I daintily took the shot glass from his hand and sipped with my pinky finger, hailing a cab in a direct mimic of his own grasp. He noticed and rolled his eyes as he sat next to me on the curved golden couch. What do you know about Darling Nikki? You know we don't play. I didn't know. I had just discovered the Foo's version of the song as someone had handed me a burn CD of it. I had initially heard them play it live when I was attempting to arrange a meeting with Prince and the band. I told him that they had played it on one of the shows he missed and he acknowledged that he was aware of it. Hmm. What did you think? I asked him between minuscule sips of Patron. I thought they were great. He was so blunt with the statement. I thought he was clowning me. Shut it, I said. I thought you said in that interview with Entertainment Weekly that you didn't like it. Seriously, what did you think? Prince turned and looked at me square. I can't say that word in the eye and said, first, don't believe everything you read. That statement was taken out of context. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that band embodied the song in a way it was meant to be played. They are so good. They could do a whole album of my rock songs. Okay. Really? I was practically leaning full on into a space because, well, tequila, would you really do that? My head was exploding from the comment. Truth be told, Ruth, I better see this much enthusiasm with my music. <laughs> this was back to school mar mode, and then that warm little smile kicked in. You really would like that, wouldn't you? Prince, I would die, I squealed quietly, quietly for me. For you, he responded, I would die for you. I ignored his corny pun. Um, and let's see, I'm going to skip just a couple and I'm serious Prince, a rock album with the foos or maybe a few others covering your songs would be epic. I have their burn CD with your cover. Have you, I want that CD in the meantime, I'll think about it. Maybe he mused. Mm -hmm. So, and there's like so much more that, um, and then let's see. And then, um, Ruth writes, I was shocked when I heard the final melody during rehearsals. He had incorporated the food's best of you into the mm -hmm. performance. What do you think? He asked over the phone after he sent me a rehearsal link to forward on to the Howard Stern show. 
I think it's fantastic, Prince. Once again, you're brilliant. I know, he sighed. I can hear him say that. He wasn't being arrogant, just exhaled a regular old run-of-the-mill statement that we both understood as fact. Did you hear I used the Foo Fighters song? Yes, I did. It's amazing. Do you think they'll like it? It was a genuine question. I can't imagine they wouldn't. You killed it. I wasn't kissing his tushies. It was truly, it truly was great. Good. Click. He hung up on me. No goodbye. No, I'll talk to you later. Just click. I hate it when he does that and he does it often. And then, um, as we all know, Prince slayed the Super Bowl to the end of time with his performance. And we received word back that the foods were pleased with his rendition. Prince finished out his residency in Vegas and we headed to London for his residency at the O2. Later that year, when we were back in Los Angeles, I received a request for music licensing for Darling Nikki. The Foos, along with CeeLo Green mm -hmm. from Goody Mob, whom we had recently met in Vegas, wanted to perform the song for MTV's VMAs. At the time, Prince wanted to personally review licensing requests and would then scrawl his 17th century Victorian approvals or rants over paperwork. Then I would fax and return. Yes, I used an ancient device called a fax machine. Most of the time, I would try to save trees and email the approval. This proved to be unmanageable, though, even with my hovering. Timing was always an issue. One of the foods managers called me in a small panic. The foods and CeeLo wanted to pour it the next night. Could I ask Prince to rush the request through? Could I? We are currently renting a 36,000-square-foot home in Beverly Glen from George Santo Prieto. The clackety-clack of my hooves reverberated up the 20-foot ceilings as I lady race walked the marathon mile to his office. And I'm not going to read that paragraph. Why are you breathing like that? He asked. I just ran down the hall. What for? The licensing request. I need you to approve it ASAP. He glared at me when I said ASAP. I'll look at it later. Leave it on. <laughs> no, I blurted rather loudly. <laughs> he glanced up in surprise. I explained to him it was for the use of Darling Nikki for MTV's VMAs. He put his book down and grabbed the paperwork from my hands and with the same pointed finger and cab hailing pinky perused through the agreement. Okay, he said. Okay. Did I stutter? Nope. Thank you. My voice trailed off the U as I ran back out of his office to call Universal Music Publishing to give them the go ahead. The next night, Prince and I, this is such a great story. I got to read the next night. And I haven't read this before, so I'm interested. The next <laughs> night, Prince and I were watching the VMAs downstairs in the movie theater. And as CeeLo and the Foos came on screen, he looked at me and said, this better be good, Ruth. As if I was standing next to the guys about to shred it out. It'll be great, I said confidently, nervously, very nervously. The sound seemed to be a little muted when CeeLo began to sing, but then Dave's guitar kicked in and they began to shred. I had one eye glued to the gigantic theater-sized movie screen and another peripherally on Prince. Pretty sure I looked like a pug at that moment. What <laughs> I on Prince watched as his hand hovered over his chin and his forefinger stroking his lips. Gratefully, the pinky was at ease. I breathed a sigh of relief. After the performance, Prince looked at me and said, you happy? Yes, <laughs> thank you. Are you? He grinned. They did a good job. I do like the way Dave keeps the integrity of the song in his performance. I'll give you, I'll give your ideas some thought. Mm. Um, and I think, oh, let's see. It's just one little bit. I, I keep looking for Darling Nikki. There's a couple more Darling Nikki paragraphs. So I'll read those only. So I'm skipping some stuff. Um, 
Okay, so there's some um, show in L.A., and she says that night the foods played a rendition of Nar Darling Nikki that nearly made me crawl on the floor begging for her to come back. <laughs> it was... <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Prince later called me to ask how the show was. I gushed. Once again, Prince reminded me that I needed to have that same level of enthusiasm for him. <laughs> Prince, I love the foods, but I love you more. I know, he said and laughed. And then if you scroll down some more towards the end, it says, as in life, I hope the minute Taylor opened his eyes in the next round that Prince's large doe eyes were there to greet him. <laughs> I hope Prince threw Taylor a new set of golden sticks and shouted, let's rock. And I hope mm -hmm. that a searing rendition of Darling Nikki rattled the holy halls with wails of excitement and inconceivable, vibrant, ecstatic joy. I hope they are both shining together and rocking on forever. And if you're wondering, Prince never did give me my burn CD of the Food Fighters version of Darling Nikki back. <laughs> he still owes me. And it goes on. Yeah. That was she, cool. Yeah, she's wonderful with the stories. Um, I really like to hear about uh, Prince the person and to get to get, you know, backstory about things that you're that 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 you're publicly aware of because you're the you know, you're the consumer, you're watching this, you're listening to this. Um, and it just really makes me lament over the passing of uh, Steve Farnoli and the, mm. the kind of context that he could put into these conversations that we're having now. Yeah. But um, yeah, Dave Grohl, he is, he's, you know, he, I'm not, I'm not a Foo Fighters guy in, in that kind of way, so much as it's one of those bands where it's like, I, you know, I want them to, I just want them to win because I just think, you know, Grohl in particular, just, you know, good people. He's got one of the most amazing second acts in in in, in oh. rock and roll. Um, yeah. yeah, and he's gone through some tremendous loss. Mm. Um, yes. It's just a really amazing, uh, uh, just a really amazing um, story. And um, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's all I got. All right, so we're gonna quickly go through, and my rabbit hole isn't that long. It's not really a rabbit hole. It's more like a, I don't know what you call it, but um, let me, we're gonna skip through all this, but up, up so far in 1983, Prince has tracked 26 songs and Darlie Nikki makes the 26th song that he has tracked. Again, you can find the slideshow on the website for the book club um, and Hold on one second. Um, yeah, I, I got your message. Thank you so mm -hmm. much, um, Man Ray, for that. Because someone's asking who is Ruth. That is who is there. Um, and so I won't go through that. And then we won't go through that. All right. So a couple of things happened this week, um, or announced rather. One is there is going to be the unveiling of Prince Rogers Nelson Memorial Highway. This is a huge deal. It's super historic. It's happening on Monday, August 7th at 10 a.m. I really wish that I could go, um, but as I've said before, my money ain't right. In fact, I'm spending too much money on records, to be honest. <laughs> so I don't have the cash to go, but I just wanted to give a very special thanks to Mark Webster, for everything that he has done to make this a reality. Uh, when I was there for celebration, he showed me that the signs are going to be purple. 
Hmm. And that is incredible. He fought really hmm. hard to make that a reality. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure um, that if you can go, please go and support um, Prince and Paisley Park. And it's such an amazing deal. And if you click on this, it'll take you to the posting that Paisley Park had. Another thing I wanted to talk about is um, this is a momentous occasion. And I didn't think this was going to happen today. But I actually finally have a vinyl version of um, I'm so excited. I haven't even opened. I got it last night. I haven't even opened it up. And I was going to do an unveiling, um, like a, do a, a un, unwrapping today during the show. But I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing me talk. So I'll just do that in the privacy of my own home. I'm so excited. And everyone should know that we're doing a we're doing two symposia next year, and one of them is going to be on Com. It's going to be a virtual virtual one in August. So I love Com. It's one of my favorite albums of all time, and I just wanted to celebrate the re-release on like a release on vinyl because it never was released on vinyl in the states. Nope. So this is a big deal for me. I was really excited when that album came out. I remember that I was in the Tower Records in Buckhead in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yep, I know all about it. And and I saw that poster, um, and I got it on day one, and it was a real inroad for me. The album it was a real inroad for me to get back into what Prince was doing, um, beginning in the early '90s. Um, there's never been an album that Prince has released that I have not purchased. Um, but that being said, um, there are a few albums that Prince has released that I don't really rock with too well. I don't I don't I don't find a way where I fit in and, and come was the Rosetta Stone of where he was at during that period. Um uh I play it to this day. Yes, indeed. And let's see. After that, I mean obviously there's a reissue of Love Sexy. I don't have that one yet, even though I ordered it, but I don't need it because I have oops the original, which I want to show. And again, I'm really doing this more for myself. And I want you guys to see, I don't know if you guys can see this, $7.99. $7.99 from uh -huh. Turtles. Uh -huh. um, still got my sticker. <clears throat> love, love, love. But I can't wait to actually get the reissue because I'm going to do like a sound test. Um, I always like to test the, the sound. Yeah, quality. that would be interesting. Yeah. I got opinions. I mean, I'm mad that it's tracked. Mm, yeah. I get it. Totally yeah. get it. I mean, I spent 50, 60 bucks on eBay to get a sealed CD of Love Sexy that was actually tracked. But I, but I wasn't one of those people that was mad that it was a single single track for the whole thing. You know, um, one long song per side of the vinyl. Um, I'm really big on what the artist intended. And if it's going to be a reissue, then reissue it as opposed to you know a reimagining of it maybe that's a little strong but you get what i mean yeah yeah that's what he put out that's how he wanted it put out put it yeah. out like that yeah all right and i'm trying to quickly get through this because we're all tired and all that thank you so really quick um Ooh, rabbit hole nice photo yeah i love this photo by anthony barboza um this week was um Betty Davis's birthday alongside Bonnie's birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just wanted to say happy birthday, have happy heavenly birthday, but also talk about these four re-releases that Light in the Attic Records are about to drop. And um, Crashing from 
for passion, which is the one in the top left, which is going to be purple vinyl, is the first time being released on vinyl, like kind of, you know, through official channels. Um, so Crashing for Passion was released, I, I want to say in the 90s, because I have it on CD, like in not the best quality, like some bootleg company or something. <clears throat> so I'm super excited. And then seeing, I have all of these, but I'm buying them again because I'm a record collector because I got to have the colored vinyl. Um, and then obviously they're going to have extended liner, liner notes. So if you're a record collector like I am and you're into Betty Davis, or if you're not into Betty Davis, you need to be into Betty Davis. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is a really great opportunity to get some really good music. Um, and you'll see that um, the, the debut, which is Betty Davis, um, is going to be like crystal vinyl and then... Um, 1974s um they say um they say she's different is going to be orange final i might not be saying it right because i'm like getting hungry <laughs> um, i just want to remind everyone that i did a symposium for betty davis i'm actually the same well a week apart from the love sexy symposium and mm. the only reason why i'm pointing this out is because Gret tate actually spoke at the betty davis symposium, mm. symposium. so if you want to see Gret tate talk about Betty Davis, you can do so uh, through the symposium. And also, um, I've compiled the Betty Davis syllabus. For those of you who don't know who Betty Davis is, this um, if you click on the, um, the this image in the slideshow, it will take you directly to this Google Doc where I've compiled a lot of, like, there's a um, one interview with her, like, in her own voice. You can hear her speaking. Um, that was recorded. I, I can't remember the exact date, but... Uh, fairly recently, not like in the 2000s, I think it was maybe the 90s, I can't remember exactly. Um, but lots and lots of resources um, about Betty for those of you who need to learn more about her. And um, that was it. So um, the reason why there's no playlist is because it took all my time to put the slideshow together this week. So what I'm going to do is after um, today or tomorrow, I'll add the playlist, the accompanying playlist, and I'm going to add um, the Foo Fighters version of Darling Nikki to that uh, play accompanying playlist. And next week, we are going to be reading pages 117 and 120 through 125. And we are going to be discussing something called August 3rd, 1983 at First Avenue. Mm. So everybody should know. But if you don't, um, you'll find out. So that's a really important date in Prince World. Um, and I just want to say thank you, Arthur. There are not many friends who would hang out with you for four hours and 30 minutes in one spot talking about Prince, but that's who we are. I was texting Joy. I'm like, you know what? We're close. We're close. We're close. He's like, it's D'Angelo stuff. Don't worry about it. Just, just do what you need to do. So you were like the only person. <laughs> Joy would be like, uh-uh. You're the only person to have some, some real, some real, some real clout. On that area, and real quick, because you mentioned the Love Sexy uh, Symposium and also Bonnie Boyer, Harold Pride did an excellent, excellent um, workshop on the band, the Love Sexy band. He spent a lot of time on Bonnie Boyer, talked about her outside of the context of Prince and her involvement in a lot of material that we know too, not obscure or anything like that. It's really good to check out to something to learn something more about her. I went to high school with her niece, Carla. And yeah, Carla, um, really nice. She was a year younger than me. Um, she was so excited that Bonnie was in Prince's band. Carla was a Prince fan 
herself, loved again, loved her aunt. Um, I had the opportunity to go, not with her family, but I had the opportunity to go with Miko Weaver's family. Um, mm-hmm. It's a whole adventure around that. But but to say that um, Bonnie, that whole band, but you know, Bonnie in particular had, had a special place in my heart through her her niece. Um, it's just nice to know the humanity of some of the musicians that we're familiar with, especially that extensive talk with, with Eric Leeds at the head of the show. So yeah. I was very, very, very happy to have been invited. Of course. I was so happy that you were here. And, um, you know, none of us are going to be here forever. So if Eric Leeds wanted to talk 10 hours, I was going to let him talk 10 hours because. Yeah. I had like 85 things to say, but I just kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Just let him go. Let you drive the bus. Just let him go. Yes, I really appreciate it. I mean, the thing is, like, when you have someone like Eric or anyone that we talk to, I really just try to let them talk. You know, I, I really try not to interrupt them as much as I can because um, you just never know what, you know, gems they might drop, you know? Indeed. So, so thank you, Arthur. Wonderful Saturday to you all. Hope you have a really great day. Hope you come back next week for week 31 of What Did Prince Do This Week? Peace. Bye.